This is Karen Hunter, and welcome to The Hub. Good morning, Nubians. Good afternoon, if you're joining us uh, in other places far flung. Uh, good evening, if you're even further or closer. Uh, hey, Dr. Carr. How you hey, doing? Professor Hunter. I am doing fine. How are you this beautiful, beautiful day? It is a beautiful day. We are here. We are in our right minds and bodies, and uh, we got work to do. I'm just every day just uh, so grateful for this space. Oh, my goodness. Yes. I'm so grateful to be in community and I'm so grateful to learn. Yes. Um, I did not get a, get a, I did not get a chance this week on my radio show to do this. So I, I just uh, indulge me for a minute. I wanted to, uh, I know we did a whole, um, you should know in inside narrative. Hey, narrative. Uh, hey, Nubians. Yes. Y'all check that out. We, we spent, I think then we, we did two sections. We ended up going so long. We had to break it up into two sessions. Yeah. It was that good because, you know, um, as this this thing crumbles and falls apart, those people who um, may be melanemic mm-hmm. or who may con- fancy themselves allies. So great. <laughs> yes, yes. If, if you ain't allying like John Brown, mm. is mm. all I want to say. So <laughs> this week in 1859, December 2nd, John Brown was hanged. But before he uh, took his last breath, this is what he had to say. And I just wanted to play it for us. Just to, re- just to remind, okay. Absolutely. Uh, oh, I gotta hit, I gotta hit play over here. All right, that's what that share screen thing is all about. Mm. I have, may it please the court, a few words to say. In the first place, I deny everything but what I have all along admitted: the design on my part to free the slaves. I intended certainly to have made a clean thing of that matter, as I did last winter when I went into Missouri and there took slaves without the snapping of a gun on either side, moved them through the country, and finally left them in Canada. I designed to have done the same thing again on a larger scale. That was all I intended. I never did intend murder or treason or the destruction of property or to excite or incite slaves to rebellion, or to make insurrection. I have another objection, and that is, it is unjust that I should suffer such a penalty. Had I interfered in the manner which I admit, and which I admit has been fairly proved, for I admire the truthfulness and candor of the greater portion of the witnesses who have testified in this case. Had I so interfered in behalf of the rich, the powerful, the intelligent, the so-called great, or in behalf of any of their friends, either father, mother, brother, sister, wife, or children, or any of that class, and suffered and sacrificed what I have in this interference, it would have been all right, and every man in this court would have deemed it an act worthy of reward rather than punishment. This court acknowledges, as I suppose, the validity of the law of God. I see a book kissed here which I suppose to be the Bible, or at least the New Testament. That teaches me that all things whatsoever I would that men should do to me, I should do even so to them. It teaches me further to remember them that are in bonds, as bound with them. I endeavored to act up to that instruction. I say I am yet too young to understand that God is any respecter of persons. I believe that to have interfered as I have done, 
as I have always freely admitted I have done, in behalf of his despised poor, was not wrong, but right. Now, if it is deemed necessary that I should forfeit my life for the furtherance of the ends of justice, and mingle my blood further with the blood of my children, and with the blood of millions in this slave country, whose rights are disregarded by wicked, cruel, and unjust enactments, I submit, so let it be done. Let me say one word further. I feel entirely satisfied with the treatment I have received on my trial. Considering all the circumstances, it has been more generous than I expected. But I feel no consciousness of guilt. I have stated that from the first, what was my intention and what was not. I never had any design against the life of any person, nor any disposition to commit treason, or excite slaves to rebel, or make any general insurrection. I never encouraged any man to do so, but always discouraged any idea of that kind. Let me say also a word in regard to the statements made by some of those connected with me. I hear it has been stated by some of them that I have induced them to join me, but the contrary is true. I do not say this to injure them, but as regretting their weakness. There is not one of them but joined me of his own accord, and the greater part of them at their own expense. A number of them I never saw, and never had a word of conversation with, till the day they came to me, and that was for the purpose I have stated. Now I have done. Mm. Yeah. Thoughts. Let me stop my share. Good morning. Good morning. Yeah, good, good, good. Good day for this conversation. And that's, that's a beautiful point of entry. Ancestors don't make any mistakes. Yeah. And, and for those of you, you know, I just woke up with that on my heart. And um, like, you know, I've been saying this uh, to my class, my classes, you know, you guys are living through history. I mean, mm. history that will be remembered forever. <laughs> you know, uh, if, it, if it were just a pandemic, that would be, you know, we had one 100 years ago, that would be history. If it were just this political climate that we're in, that would be history. Um, but there's division. We, as you mentioned, might be in the midst of a cold civil war that oh, probably yeah, never yeah, ended yeah, yeah, fully. One side's not fighting, but yeah. <laughs> One mm. side's not fighting, but yeah. So, so here we are. And I thought it would be uh, interesting to evoke the words of John Brown, who uh, was hanged after those words, uh, December 2nd, 1859. This first week of this first week of December is um it's a lot there. And I want to ask you why you think that whispered in your ear to bring and this in our African States framework would be movement and memory. I mean, John Brown is a name that is fairly nondescript. There's a lot of John Browns, but there's only one John Brown. And it really is remarkable that a name so you know, it's adjacent to like saying John Smith or something. I mean, but but no, when you say John Brown, everybody knows who you're talking about. So in terms of movement and memory, I think that's something that penetrates the governance structure of people of African descent. I mean, there's, there's a street name for John Brown in Port-au-Prince, Haiti. Um, there, John Brown is memorialized around the world. Uh, he's the one white man in the U.S. settler state social structure who has penetrated the consciousness of people of African descent and uh, beyond the kind of glib invited to the cookout in fact uh yeah. but 
in this first week of December, I'm curious as to why you think that that moment that resonates from 1859 to now spoke to you in a week when we saw in December the 1st, 1955, Rosa Macaulay Park say, I'm not getting off this bus. And then uh, four days later, it'll be the anniversary is actually tomorrow when they start the Montgomery's bus boycott. Um, Alpha Phi Alpha was founded today in 1906 and thinking about the black elites. Um, but there, there are a couple of other things that come to mind. But why you think John Brown spoke to you today in this time, in this moment? Because I don't see any John Browns today. Hmm. And John Brown then had a lot more to lose stepping forward. And again, y'all can go into narrative and watch uh, Dr. Carr's masterful unpacking of who this man was. I don't see anyone with the moral conviction to do the right things in the right time or in any time today. And I feel even more discouraged or pessimistic about, you know, what he set forth. Um, and then there was a drumbeat, Denmark Vesey, there was Nat Turner, John Brown. There was like a whole lot of, you know, that, that started probably in IT with the, the Louvertour and the uprising there. But there, there seems to be a lot of complacency today about where we are, which is why I wanted to, you know, remind my students about this period of time and the importance of it. And it'll be remembered forever. And what's your role in it as uh, none of you have lived through uh, a time period when it was not legal federally to have an abortion. You're about to see that go away. The the men and women in this room. How about um, that? They have never, you know, the oldest student I have, I think is in his thirties. Um, but most of them are 18, 18 to 23, mm-hmm. 24. You've never lived in a world where you couldn't in your country go get an abortion. Legally. At least not in certain States. You know, it's interesting. There's a, there's a writer for the New York times, uh, they had a round table. They printed a round table the other day of columnists writing. And was it Michelle Goldberg? I think it was Michelle Goldberg who said this. She said, this in no way compares to the experience of, I, call, I, 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 have, I don't say African-Americans, Black Americans, but so I'll use my language. But she says, this, this, this in no way compares to the experience of people of African descent in the United States. Charles Blow was one of the people, the columnists who he participated in the round table, Ross Duhigg few others um but she said something very interesting she said this will be the first time in my lifetime that as a white woman i will have had my rights diminished she says it doesn't compare to what black people have gone through in this country at the same time it gives me a a a a crack of a peek into what must be the black black experiences every day when all of you are right, she said, well, this will be the first time for me as a white, as a white woman, that they're going to take a right away from me. <laughs> it's like, but. And, and let me just, let me, let me be clear about this too, um, because I know that there's some people who are still infected with the uh, social structure uh, way of thinking. This is not an endorsement or an indictment of the, the system of abortion or whether it's right or wrong. This has nothing to, to me. This is, this argument is not even about abortion. What's going on right now in this country is not even about whether a woman has a right to choose or not choose or because I don't know anyone that is pro-abortion. Yay, let's go get abortions. There's something else going as a power str- struggle. 
at, at the forefront. It is about uh, pr hmm. preservation and fear. There's a hmm. whole lot more, you know, and I don't want it, this conversation to devolve any place into, oh, well, black people got to preserve children. Yes, we, we all do. <laughs> well, I mean, but there is there is a there is a an Africana studies way to approach this that Come would allow us to have all those conversations. It seems to me. I mean, if we're thinking about strictly the social structure, and again, these these categories are categories that are um, we design them in perpetual dialogue to allow us some space to think. They are not conceptual categories that are not fluid, they don't bleed into one another, but they give us some space to think. So when we ask the social question, who are Africans to other people, in the context of the world we live in now, the modern world system, which is really anchored in settler colonialism and Western kind of ways of knowing, uh, in the United States, what we're facing with now, th this case that we saw argued this week at the Supreme Court, Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization, the Mississippi case, where the state of Mississippi passed a law that was intentionally designed to wreck Roe versus Wade. And let me pause there and ask you, uh, Professor Hunter, because I know you discussed this on the show. What kind of comments and conversation were you all having? What was the tone and, and kind of what was some what was some of the feedback? Let me reach for my. Well, go ahead. Let me get, get my cup here. I'm listening. There we go. Wanted to get that. Couldn't hear you. Couldn't hear you. You uh, muted. Uh, I said, fortunately, I you know I control the mic uh, on my air. So <laughs> yes, of course. Oh, so always. I, I didn't want it to devolve because it 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 gets simplified so easily into you know um, you know the the rights of men, uh, you know black black children and eugenics and Mar Margaret Sanger. You know it, it goes down those rabbit holes really really quickly. So I avoided all of that you're muted now i avoided all of those conversations uh and then focused on you know how the court was packed how the court was packed with um three people the last being amy coney barrett uh who expressly would over to for this purpose for a time such as this and and i talked about the long view and how mississippi this case was brought because they knew they had the, the numbers at the supreme court level and that it wasn't a year or two years. This was like a 10 year, uh, you know, march to doing this and that they understood the power of the lower courts and the judges, which is why Mitch McConnell wouldn't allow Barack Obama to seat his Supreme Court pick. And so like for us who unfortunately in our DNA for 400 years have had to react to everything that was happening to us, the luxury of sitting back and viewing the world from a perch and then seeing where you want it to be in 10, 20, 50, 100 years, and then doing all of the things right now to make sure that everything falls like the dominoes that they are laid up to be. We don't have that luxury and we never have uh, in this country for the last 400 years. But you know, memory being a thing, this is why we're coming together. We were planners before here. So I've talked about it through through the, the lens of like, the, the fortitude of planning and what the results end up in. And, and then I brought up Stacey Abrams, who's running for governor. Yes. And that was somebody who said, okay, all right, I got you. Um, so here's what I'm going to do. And I'm not so sure that the strategy of coming into the governor's race at this time with Warnock's seat being on the, on the line for the express purpose of people showing up to vote because they're going to show up for her. 
wasn't strategy. And that's the way that. Oh, so I think that's that, it. Isn't it something to see black people engage in deeper political work that is informed by being smart? It's something about a black college, I think. I mean, you know, the HBCUs have their deep structural flaws. In, in many ways, they're blackface versions of white schools, frankly. And uh, anybody want to at me at that, maybe we talk about it Monday night on office hours. But just trust me, you better know more than I know about it, including from experience. But um, in this case, I think this Spellman grad, she playing chess. I, I have no doubt what you just said. See, that's interesting. You pick, you you immediately went to that. Yeah, this isn't just about her. She's trying to save Raphael Warnick. And then from this fool, Herschel Walker. <laughs> so say some more about that. You know, so so this abortion thing, which is not about abortion at all, but power, because uh, only two people on that Supreme Court had 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 ovaries that worked. Mm. Um, and, and one of them has been, uh, is snatching up black children. Yeah, uh, handmade. Yeah, anyway. yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, um, all right, three of them, three of them. I I forgot, I forgot about uh, Elena Kagan. Sorry. Oh, Kagan, um, yeah. Yeah, one black woman, and uh, he said, Sotomayor is not black. If she spoke Spanish and her name was Sonia Wilson, y'all wouldn't even be arguing. But that whole black elected woman's from Puerto Rico, y'all. Everybody calm down. <laughs> but, I mean, she may not even claim it completely herself, but she doesn't dis uh, she doesn't deny, and no one from that island can deny. But uh, when she said in oral arguments, she asked the question of whether or not this court could survive the stench that will come from this decision. She you was know, speaking to something very important. And when she said that, I thought about you. I oh, thought yeah. you because the car crash yeah. that you talk about this being, she she brought it to the forefront. Like if this, if this court is political, and I said to my students, you know, three equal, co-equal branches of government dismantled. Oh yeah, dismantled. it's coming y'all. People no. think we'd be engaged in hyperbole. It's not hyperbole, no. So so how did, how did you view it? The same as you did, I think this is the thing, I mean, First of all, there are no rights. Can we just finally disabuse ourselves of the notion of rights? There are human social formations and decisions, and there's power. The notion of rights, I mean, and there will be people say, yes, there are, there are God-given rights. Okay, that presumes there's God. We're not gonna get into a whole uh -oh. debate and argument, you know, and as black people have known in the United States since the inception of this settler violence, your rights are whatever the cop says there are when you get stopped. And as they taught us from youth, if you get stopped by the police, you black in America, your job is to survive. <laughs> you understand? Now, you know, we, we could parse that in terms of the question of resistance because there have been come there have come moments when we've decided that survival is not enough. And uh, you know, you've seen what has happened in the wake of that. Uh, but the the idea of rights really is, is more of a cultural concept. And so the idea of a right of a woman to terminate a pregnancy, the right of a woman to control her body, the right of a person to control their body is really theoretical until it's applied. And so in that regard, yeah, this isn't about terminating pregnancies. This is about the concept of what rights will be, will endure and what rights will be uh, paired back. And when you heard Justice Beer, um, Justice uh, snot, Snotty Cry, uh, Justice accused of sexual assault and had it shut down by his friends, Justice, somebody paid all my bills, and I'm still not telling y'all who, Justice Beer go launch into this 
interrogation of the possibility of overturning precedents, he's telling you. This is the logic of the Federalist Society that was created when Justice Beer and I were in law school. Um, and Justice Beer has been waiting for a moment like this. Uh, Sonia Sotomayor was speaking to um, William Rehnquist's protege, Johnny John Roberts, who uh, was only too happy to shred the concept of uh, a United States of America in 2010 with Citizens United, was only too happy to tear up the floorboards on the notion of participatory democracy with uh, his participation in the Shelby County versus Holder case several years later. Justice John Roberts, who claims to be an institutionalist, talk about a plain lane, plain name. His name will go down too. another plain name that when you say John Roberts, everybody knows who you're talking about. Not as much as John Brown, but Sotomayor was talking to John Roberts. Hey, hey, baby, look, the stench, the thing you claim not to want with your ivory soap looking uh, whitewashed, white bread. And uh, this isn't a criticism of him as a human being. This is the idea that somehow the John Roberts of the United States still formed the concept of what it means to be a normative citizen of the United States or a normative American, which is a little bit broader concept. This is John Roberts is who people think about when you talk about what would the reasonable person do. That's how Kyle Rittenhouse gets off. Kyle Rittenhouse is a disturbed little boy. Why? Because he's a boy version of a white man. That would be literally John Roberts. If you look up Webster's American Dictionary and if you had a picture for what it meant to be, it would be John Roberts. Sonia Sodium, you're okay, looking at him like... I don't want to. I just want to put a uh, you know footnote. Speaking of little boys, that picture that they posted of Crumbly, that cretin, that evil, mm -hmm. that looked nothing to what like the way he looked now. Like and and with, across all media forms, like to of the course. point where we didn't really get to see what he looked like until a couple of days later. And are, is his parents? Are his parents still on the loose? Are they still? Well, I mean, they have a whole white country to hide in. So <laughs> uh, I suspect that there will be those harboring them. Looks like we have a version of the the white version of the Underground Railroad is in effect now. Isn't it, Professor Hunter? Oh, my gosh. <laughs> they're, not, they're not fugitives from justice. They're fugitives from humanity because humanity looking for them and whiteness is going to. Good luck finding them. <laughs> this is interesting, isn't it? <laughs> and I was, the, the precedence of charging the parents with manslaughter? Well, I mean, it's a little bit better when, uh, in fact, this is uh, this, this is the Michigan, this is the Michigan Michigan case, Michigan yeah. case of the uh, school shooting, Oxford High yeah. School. Well, this is very interesting. Here's the, here's the, here's Jack Healy's uh, front page article from today's New York Times. Uh, the gun was an early Christmas gift from his parents, a semi-automatic nine millimeter Sig Sauer handgun. My new beauty, Ethan Crumley, fifteen, called it the day after Thanksgiving. Let's pause there. The day after Thanksgiving, this is a week ago yesterday, he and his father had gone together to a Michigan gun shop to buy it. He and his mother spent a day testing out the gun, which was stored unlocked in the parents' bedroom. On Monday, when a teacher reported seeing their son searching online for ammunition, the boy in school searched for ammunition, his mother did not seem alarmed. Quote, LOL, I'm not mad at you, end quote. Jennifer Crumley texted her son, quote, you have to learn not to get caught. End quote. A day later, the authorities say the teenager fatally shot four classmates in the halls of Oxford High School in suburban Detroit using the handguns his parents had bought for him. It's easier to charge them when you 
you just you took him then they told you and you said don't get caught i think in other words professor hunter that while this may appear on its face to be encouraging i think that any other state court any other uh jurisdiction lawyers attempting prosecutors attempting to do this kind of charge would find themselves confronted with the fact that the very specific facts of this case any defense attorney is going to say no these are different because this in this case this boy daddy literally walked him into the store and bought it and the mama literally said hey you're at school looking for ammunition don't get caught i mean it makes it almost impossible not to be able to charge them in other words and, and thank you Nubia. we have to ask about that but I, I think i don't know i'm just thinking okay. <laughs> In the Nubia chat, uh, the Nubians have told us that they have indeed caught James and Jennifer Crumbly are in custody. Where, are Where did they find them, y'all? Uh, they, 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 did they say, let me see, Detroit, Saturday morning. Detroit? Little, yeah, they were found early Saturday morning in Detroit a little more. They tried to hide in Detroit. Oh, no, that, that's their that mistake. They went to Detroit. <laughs> that was the problem. A little more than two hours after a citizen saw their vehicle and called the police. So. Shout out, Black people. We yeah. already know what happened there. You went the wrong way. Y'all should have went north. They went to Detroit. All right, governance structure. Shout out to the governance structure. <laughs> that was a mistake. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they really are as dumb as they look. Huh? Yep. <laughs> but you know, no, I, you know what, though, President, just on the, in that Michigan case, just for a second, I was thinking about this the other night. Oakland, Michigan, Oakland County, Michigan is about where say 40 miles north of Detroit. And it is about halfway between Detroit and further north, about 40, about 40, 50 miles, about 45, 50 miles north of Oakland County is the little town where Terry Nichols is from. You remember Terry Nichols? It, was it the Unabomber? Was it? Well, one, one of them white terrorists, domestic. Yeah. He was Timothy McVeigh's friend. Remember the Oklahoma okay, City? Yes. Okay. He was raised on a farm. He, white nationalist, you know, survivalist, gun shooting, gun toting. And we said, what do those two things have to do with each other? Well, I'm going to tie them together. Terry Nichols was born, if I remember correct, 1973 or 4. 1974. Milliken versus Bradley was decided. Milliken versus Bradley was a case that made it to the Supreme Court where the Detroit public schools were found to be hyper segregated. And that's kind of, you know, in other words, if you were white in Detroit, you probably weren't going to school with black children and vice versa. And of course, Detroit being a majority black city at the time. Milliken versus Bradley, that's about 20 years, not quite 20 years after Brown versus Board of Education, 1955. And Legal scholars will tell you from 1954, Brown versus Board of Education, 1955, so-called Brown II, where the Supreme Court punks out uh, and says that, you know, you can desegregate with all deliberate speed, basically winking at their cousins in the South, telling them to do whatever the hell they want to do. So that stench, Sonny Sonny Muir was talking about this week, that stench goes all the way back to the founding of the court. In fact, you can just trace it back to John Marshall. John Marshall. Anyway, um, from 1955, Brown II, to the decade in the decade following very little desegregation of public education took place 
And so from 1965 to the mid-70s, you see uh, the courts increasingly heavy-handed. This is when busing is for, kind of forced on the court, uh, for, forced on some of these uh, municipalities. You look at, of course, the most famous busing case being the North Carolina case. Um, uh, Terry Nichols, thank you, yes, Terry Nichols. So um, Swan versus Charlotte Mettlenburg. But in 1974, Supreme Court tells folk, ah, okay, Supreme Court tells people that um, Detroit is segregated, its schools are segregated, and the solution that was proposed was that the school district of Detroit be intersected by the surrounding school districts in the municipalities around the city of Detroit and that students from Detroit be allowed to be bused into some of those municipalities. The Supreme Court said you can't do that. You cannot solve for desegregation by desegregating whole regions. It's got to be in the city of Detroit. Now, I, I said it to, to, to raise this question. What if you had a racially diverse culturally diverse, class diverse public education system that encompassed Oakland High School? Would it have made a difference? We don't know the answer to that question. Supreme Court shut down the possibility of that question with Millican versus Bradley, which is a Detroit busing case, 1974. However, within a an hour drive of Detroit, without within an hour and a half drive of Detroit, you have Terry Nichols, and thank you, Professor Hunter, Lapeer, Michigan, you have this boy from Oakland, Michigan, who grew up, no doubt, in society, in a society where, number one, violence is the rule and not the exception in this society. Mm. This is the rule. Violence is what Western society is grounded in, and violence is what United States society is grounded in and exports to the world. If you go to a movie and there's not an explosion, children say it's boring. You got to see somebody punched in the face. You got to see somebody shot. You got to see some explosions. How many explosions are you going to have? That's the video game. It's everything. So people, this is part of the culture. But then when you take that culture of violence and further exacerbate the existing racial uh, condition in this society, the racial contract, you're going to end up with a Terry Nichols and a Tim McVeigh bombing a federal building in Oklahoma City and killing a bunch of black children who were in the daycare there. Because you know, a lot of black folk work for the federal government and they in that building, those, black, those children died that day in Oklahoma City. You're going to end up with an Ethan Crumley, 15 years old. You're gonna end up with a Kyle Rittenhouse because they have been raised in a country where they don't have a lot of contact with people who don't look like them. And their families, their parents, their communities have told them that they are engaged in a war for their way of life. And then you turn around and that war has been amplified. Certainly this boy Crumley, if he's 15, that means that he was not even a teenager when the president of the United States, in fact, president of the United States traveling through Michigan, among other places. But every day, and I'm sure they had their, their television in the, in, the, uh, in the Crumley home tuned to Fox, is basically telling you to do what you did. Now, the irony, of course, is that the violence that he exacted is white on white crime but that's what happened in columbine and and, and professor hunter i mean I don't remember, that was 1999 when it, that was that was just a little over 20 years ago columbine colorado you know this violence that we're talking about and kyle rittenhouse killed white people harm white people the idea is that 
unregulated violence in a gunfighter nation, to quote the title of a book that was written uh, about 20 years ago on this subject, is at the core of this issue in this social structure. Except, of course, when those guns are in the hands of non-white people. So how do you solve something? How do you solve for something like what happened in Oakland? Who would you say, Professor Honey? <laughs> how do you solve for it? Can it be fixed? No. I, I don't I don't know. I mean, by whom though? I mean, it can be fixed, but I guess it'll it'll have to be fixed by the people that broke it, right? Or or forced. I don't know. I don't know, Dr. Carr. Let's let's walk through that. Walk through that. How can it be fixed? Well, I mean, can it be fixed structurally? Well, the structure, this is the structure. You just said it. Violence is the rule, not the exception. This country is founded in hypocrisy, founded in torture, founded in genocide, founded in spilling of blood, founded in dehumanization at the same mm. time, not the other side of the mouth. We hold mm. these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. While I hold and rape and brutalize human beings, I've created a system that has deemed them three-fifths or less than a human uh, for eternity so that I can stay at the top of the food chain. I don't know if it can be fixed structurally. Structurally? That's, that is the structure. That is the structure. Oh, well, there we have the problem then, don't we? Yeah. Can't be fixed. It's going <laughs> to have to be rebuilt. Or, or better yet, remade. Because rebuilt presumes that the blueprints were solid, that you can dismantle it. and But if you dismantle it and rebuild using the same materials then you're going to get the same result. As Malcolm X once said, although he was born, as we talked about extensively in Omaha, Nebraska, he spent part of his life in Michigan, in Lansing, on a farm. As a young man, as a child, Malcolm, um, you know, said, you know, as long as you have the ingredients for an explosion, you have the potential for explosion on your hands. Mm. And these aren't outlying events. And, and and so when we think about this situation, this crumbly situation, this is something that's really been on my mind. It's always on my mind. I mean, this is this is what animated us building out this, this Africana States framework. And then with you bringing into our capacity as a people and as people narrative and now Nubia, we really have a place to have these, not only conversations, but then to act upon them. A lot of people will make a distinction between those who talk, those who read and write, those who teach, and then those who do. And that, of course, is an absurd distinction uh, if, if we're talking about effect, because what, the, what these discussions do, what these, what these uh, thinking sessions do is enable us to act. We're always acting. We're always informed by thinking. This allows us to think more deeply, think collectively, and, and to work through this. So this system is based on violence. The Crumley situation is not an outlier. In fact, it is entirely predictable. And whether or not his parents are convicted and punished, to put them in the context, and we're talking now about the social structure. We haven't even got to the governance structure yet. We'll get to that in a second. But 
um, to put it in the context of the first thing we heard this morning, and thank you for playing that, John Brown. John Brown, very carefully, and I resisted the urge, and we do, you know, Nubian. I saw, I saw you looking. I saw yeah, I was looking over there for, I was going to get that, that big, thick volume with, with the speech in it, so we can go back, but I'm not going to die. I didn't get up. I said, I'm get up, get up. No, I'm going to sit there. Yeah, I looked over there, because, you know, we had all the John Brown, but y'all go back. If y'all haven't looked at that, we spent hours on John Brown, all the volumes, all the different pieces. We walked through Brown uh, coming out of the Northeast. We saw he and his sons. That's why they called him old Potawatomi Brown out there in what a quote, quote unquote bleeding Kansas in the 1850s with his sons trying to bring Kansas into the federal union as a, a, a state that did not practice enslavement. Uh, we saw him in Canada. Remember, we pulled Francis Rollins. Uh, I'm looking over, looking, looking at over there. Um her life and uh, life of uh, Martin Delaney, where Martin Delaney met with John Brown, went up there and got those Africans up there, had a constitution drafted and all this. And we encourage everyone to not only uh, examine this long conversation we had about John Brown and really put him in context along with all the other people, but also, and I'm going to resist the urge to talk about a lot of books, but um, certainly Eugene Meyer's book, uh, Five for Freedom, which is a nice point of departure for M-E-Y-E-R, Meyer. A uh, nice point of departure for looking at the men of African descent, uh, Shields Green, Dangerfield Newby, who went with John Brown to Harper's Ferry. That's one place. And then the other one is a piece of speculative fiction by the science fiction, write, science fiction writer, Terry Bisson, uh, one of my favorites, a small volume called Fire on the Mountain. I don't think I have a copy. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not. I'm, I think those are over there somewhere. Fire on the Mountain, where uh, he engages writing through the the the, the central figure are a black woman and her daughter. Uh, it's got everything from space travel to, but the whole idea is, what if John Brown had won? And I say John Brown. What if John Brown had been successful? And it's a fascinating speculation because what he, what what Bisson basically does, and I won't give it away. I encourage you all. B i s s o n Terry Bisson. Um, what he what he basically concludes is that there wouldn't be a United States. There would be there would have been a fracture of the federal polity into different countries, um, Nova Africa, you know, and and that the people of African descent not only would have benefited from that, but would have been able to reestablish ties with Africa and with the people of the world. And if you really look at the history of the United States of America, of America, you find that African people have not only been in this country, have not only been always been open to making or to re rediscovering or to reconnecting and making those connections with Africans everywhere and, and other people in the world, but have done it, have done it whenever they were able to do it. And in other words, this idea of state fidelity and state loyalty is a fragile concept to begin with in the social structure. And for people of African descent, it has always been negotiable. This is one of my uh, differences with my friend Nicole Hannah Jones and him with the 1619 Project. I think it is utterly absurd to presume that Africans in the United States of America view American identity as anything other than a circumstance that they will use to whatever advantage they need to use for the moment, but ain't nobody dying for that flag. And any Negro that does must must either have a, a material class interest or uh, has been woefully undereducated, but make no mistake about it. 
there is no unalloyed assertion that black people are Americans first. It's quite absurd. It's almost as absurd as uh, uh, President Macron in France standing at the Pantheon to last week before the cenotaph of Josephine Baker. And a cenotaph is basically a monument to someone who's buried somewhere else. So when they put Josephine Baker, who I believe becomes the sixth woman, Marie Curie in, or is in there, for example, uh, to be uh, entombed or at least uh, symbolically entombed in the Pantheon in Paris. And I've been to the Pantheon, you know, Victor Hugo, Voltaire. Now it's where they had a French national heroes. But it's almost as absurd as Macron saying, you know, she did not see being black first. You know, she's French first. There's a universal Frenchness. Yeah, with all them immigrants in France that y'all be giving hell to? Come on, Macron, we know what it is, baby. But black people ain't never put a flag before our collective interest. So I said I'd say this. The, you know, Terry Bisson in Fire on the Mountain speculates, what if John Brown had been successful? If John Brown had been successful, the nation would have fractured. And in fact, John Brown was successful in some ways, even though he was physically killed. And parenthetically, people at black communities in America including uh, led by women of African descent, uh, offered and provided material resources, money, uh, first and foremost, to John Brown's family after his, 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 uh, his wife and his surviving children, after he and several of his sons died as a result of Harper's Ferry, either at, at Harper's Ferry or executed after. I decided to say that um, the fracturing of this country was not um was not forestalled by what John Brown did in fact it happened anyway a couple of years later in 1861 uh John C Calhoun and all them people out there in South Carolina you know shout out to y'all you 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 find Americans because they thought what they were doing was American in fact remember we talked about this in John Brown I won't get too deep into John Brown but since since you played it it, it just brings up so many ironies and they're not even really ironies so many consistent pieces of American history uh, you know of course we know that the federal government dispatched troops to put down the rebellion in Harper's Ferry. And those troops were led by General, well, eventually General for the Confederacy, Robert E. Lee. And one of his lieutenants was Stonewall Jackson. These are American soldiers, U.S. soldiers. They became Confederate soldiers a couple of years later. But um, uh, in that process, Bisson says the country would have fractured had John Brown been successful. And in that piece you played, which was John Brown's last testament, last speech before he was killed by the state, Brown says, I wasn't trying to kill all these people. What we were trying to do is raid the armory and get to the mountains and basically set up maroon communities. That's what they were doing. Self-governing spaces in them hills, in the Virginia hills. And it's a very interesting narrative that comes with that. So let me tie this again to Michigan. And then we talk about this abortion case in context. And then we keep going. What is very clear about this and this is where when people say we got to be better, we're better than this, we got to reform this. Oh, by the way, one of the persons who used to always say we're better than this, of course, is the now ancestor Elijah Cummings. And I just want to mention this in passing in terms of cultural meaning making. Shout out to this young brother right here. This is in uh, the, the art section of the New York Times. This is Jarrell Gibbs. Jarrell Gibbs only started painting. He's from Baltimore. He only started painting uh, about six years ago. He's 33 years old. He uh, got his Master's of Fine Arts at the Maryland Institute 
College of Art last year. Micah, any of y'all know Baltimore? And I know you raise a smile when you think about when you come into Baltimore, because I when I go to everyone's place. My man Nati and then Baba Nati over in North Avenue go to the bookstore. When you come across that colored candy colored bridge downtown Baltimore, the Micah is over there at the Maryland um Institute of College of Art. So this is young uh Jarrell Gibbs, 33 years old. Jarrell Gibbs got the commission to paint Elijah Cummings portrait for that will hang in the United States Capitol. This is this is his portrait of Elijah Cummings. So I just want to say he did a great job. I mean, you know, it's a, it's a, it's 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 clearly got a kind of young gloss, but it's Africana. I, you can just feel that energy, right, coming off him. So shout out to Jarrell Gibbs. But Elijah Cummings used to always say, "We're better than this. We're better than this." With all due respect, and ancestor number one, who is we? Number two, no, it's not better than this. This is the way it was structured. And so Bisson's thing is it would break if Brown had won. Brown triggered the war, and then the war was fought by Lincoln and the Union Army and the and the and the federal government to bring the Union back together at all costs. And all costs in this social structure means conceding to white nationalism. From the beginning of the experiment, from the Federalist Papers, before the Constitution, then through the Articles of Confederation, which saw too weak a federation, to the United States Constitution, the balance has been, can we preserve white nationalism while engaging in this settler experiment that cannot purge itself of all these non-whites? And that has always been an open question because at the heart of white nationalism is violence beginning with the first toes, 10 toes down, take it from the Aboriginal people, 10 toes down, bring these other people over here and work the hell out of them and try to and, and, and define humanity in a way that leaves them outside of the definition of humanity. 10 toes down, when it means even when you bring other people over here who are not from Africa or Asia or anywhere, who are from Europe, you make them fight their way into whiteness by, by basically swearing an oath to and protecting whiteness, whether it be the Germans, whether it be the Italians, whether it be the Irish, whether it be whoever you name. When they come here, if they want to fight their way into whiteness, Matthew Fry Jacobson writes about this, Noel Ignatev writes about this, how the Irish became white. Uh, Matthew Fry Jacobson, so many books, whiteness of a different color being one. You know, make them fight their way into this. And so what you end up doing is assembling the ingredients for an explosion. Because when you have all these different people in this social structure, this federal project called United States of America that is only stitched together through a series of compromises that are constantly being tested, you don't have a nation. There is no common culture. There is no common memory. I don't care how many times you fly a flag, play an anthem, say the American people, say we, the people in it seethe under the deep structural inequalities that are congealed around a concept of whiteness that weaponizes everything. Capitalism is bad enough. Racial capitalism, some people would say racial capitalism is capitalism. I don't want to get into that today, but I will say that when race is at the center of that capitalist project, you got a real problem. So now, how does all this kind of work together? Well, the problem you have is that the United States of 2021 isn't even the United States of 1965. Certainly isn't the United States of 1859 when John Brown tried to uh, basically save the soul of America. That's another thing. America doesn't have a soul. Because to have a soul, you got to think of in terms of a corporate, a corporeal, not corporate, well, corporate, I suppose, interestingly enough. But anyway, a, a corporal identity. In other words, like a body has a soul. The idea, if you think 
that people have a soul. That, that's your soul, right? And it's part of a larger entity. America doesn't have a soul because to have a soul presumes that it's a being. It's not a being. It's a settler state with a lot of different nations in it. And so uh, the America, the United States of America of, of 2021 isn't the United States of America of the 1960s, isn't the United States of America of the 1860s or 50s, isn't the United States of America of the 1780s and 90s. The demographics continue to change. You know, it's interesting. A lot of, when we think about it, when were when was the um the frontier? Think of the language we use even now. The frontier of the United States. When was it closed? The 20th century. What does that mean? That means that the idea that the United States of America has occupied from the Atlantic to the Pacific was not formally declared by the federal government until I believe the first decade of the 20th century. Why? Because they were still fighting the Aboriginal people. The place where I work, Howard University, General Howard. Yeah, Oliver Howard, when he left the Freemans Bureau, comes back into active military duty. His job is to go chase Native Americans to the Pacific Ocean, Chief Seattle. It's another reason why you don't see me rock a whole lot of stuff, man. Y'all can't black that name up enough for me. But the point is that they don't declare that border closed, in other words, until they feel like they've occupied from sea to sand and sea. Now, if you are an Aboriginal person, if you're a First Nations person, or if you are a human being who absolutely says that everyone's a human being, including those people, how do you feel to this day when you hear language in textbooks or, or popular culture? It's talking about a frontier. That means you still, in the American imagination, an enemy. Well, everyone's included. And when the United States, you know, those pioneers, who, what is a pioneer? People were living there. If I come to your house, am I a pioneer because I punched you in the face and took your uh, took your lunch? <laughs> no, no. Is it, the, uh, there is no we. There's no country. There's fights and there's violence at the heart of whiteness and settler colonialism. Now, what you see happen in Michigan last week, what we saw happen in Kenosha, Wisconsin, this is a this is a struggle between people who want to create a different society and people who have been told that if those other people are successful, they're going to lose something. Now, when you look at a Kyle Rittenhouse, you can say, this boy is crazy. Is he? No, because y'all told him we. And it ain't no we. When he hears we, he thinks white men. And you and because you keep saying we and not defining it, you're helping him every time you say we, he feel like he's a patriot. It's my duty. And guess what? Every example you give him of a patriot got a gun in their hand. So where exactly is this boy wrong? <laughs> it's what I'm trying to understand. Because every time you launch into a defense of the United States. It, 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 every time you launch into defense of the United States, it reinforces the idea that there's some concept of American weeness that is exceptional in the world. And if that's true, then you got to explain Vietnam. You got to explain uh, protecting these drug companies like Moderna and Pfizer and everybody else. I was just reading something, uh, you know, the, the, the folk in, the, in Africa who are leading a healthcare policy are saying, you know, in Botswana, for example, they paying like $29 a dose. For these vaccines, is it you gonna defend all that? 
Are these actually, you know, yes. Why? Because, I mean, this is capitalism. It's America. It's pro- I mean, and ultimately we know what's best and we'll do charity for the rest of the world. Yeah, But you're the ones who participated along with Europe in dispossessing people and stuff in the first place. Now, I'm not defending Kyle Rittenhouse. I'm letting you know that because every time we say we and don't stand up to this violent core of settler colonial violence that is informed by this notion of whiteness, every time we gloss over it, we give people like that justification in their minds to defend the project as it is. You're not going to reform it. Robert E. Lee, Stonewall Jackson, uh, you name it, Jeb Stewart, you go through all of them. Nathaniel Bedford Forrest, the founder of the Klan, these guys are all in their minds the real patriots. Jefferson Davis, they are the real patriots. The traitors are the ones who bring all these other people into this mess. And the other people being brought into it are constantly at risk because they keep pushing to say, yeah, me too. And every time they say me too, all the people who are like, yeah, no, you too, but you less than I am, are going to push back. And here's the decision that everybody who thinks they don't have a side in this have to make. The decision you have to make is which side are you on? John Brown made a decision. John Brown is like, I'm on the side of humanity. I'm not trying to kill nobody. Listen to what John Brown said. We're going to arm ourselves and go create some maroon communities because slavery is evil. Now, at the heart of the American project is something they would they would say that this is a secular, secular country. It's a lie. At the center of whiteness is a white way of knowing that has a notion of a white God. For God, no question. And, you know, in a lot of black places, too. I mean, at Howard University, you got a, got a seal that says Deo et Republica, God and Republic. And they got Deo in the thing. So, I mean. There's always this notion that this is divine providence. That is the core of manifest destiny. God told us to take all this. So there's a white notion of God even at the center of that. Now, that leads us to the question of if this white settler project has a has a white national identity at the core, one that is divinely ordained, then where does this notion of rights come from? We're still in the social structure. We can get to the governance structure in a second. Well, when you read the fellows papers, you know, they talk a lot about the so-called founding fathers of this country being deists, you know, not believing in one particular God, but they absolutely do. That's why I believe, you know, Pauline Mayer, I think wrote the book many years ago called American scripture when she's writing about the declaration of independence constitution. I think it's pretty well settled that uh, there is a concept of God at the center of this white Christian God in particular. Then there's this notion of rights. Where do these rights come from? Rights come from nature. God implied natural rights and certain rights, freedom. You know, among these rights are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. You, y'all know the language. You know the language. But then those kind of rights have to be exercised, defended, enforced. And that's where you need human institutions to do that. Well, up until you write a law down that that conforms with your concept of natural law, then what you're basically doing is treating each other based on your assumption about what the nature is of the rights people have. That's what they might call the common law. I often refer to it as the cultural law. In other words, there's no rule written down, but this is how you treat people. And this is how we're going to treat y'all. So we have a dispute. We go to a judge. The judge ain't going to look for a rule in a book. What she's going to do is say, well, this is con- this is stand- this is conventional. This is the way people treat each other. Now, 
if you want to, and I'm going to get too deep into this, you know, this is a question. Maybe we talk about it in one office hours. We talk, talk about the questions of foundations of Western law and the American legal universe. We start talking about this notion of uh, reasonable standards, what a reasonable person would or wouldn't do. A lot of that is informed by the cultural law. There is no reasonable person. There's no one person who's reasonable. Right? There's, there, there, there's the way culture defines reasonableness and depending on who you are and where you are remember when Sonia Sotomayor was being uh vetted before the senate for her confirmation uh and she didn't cry a snap but then she never you know took out her penis and waved it in where she didn't have penis to take out and wave. I guess she never dropped her drawers at a party and got drunk and then she went to Yale anyway point is that uh when she was testifying she uh said you know sometimes having a wise Latina judge might make a difference, you know, in terms of perspective, in terms of what she brings to the table. And of course, the white nationalists, white men went ballistic on her. What? Uh, even the language of pop culture shows that white violence, right? Ballistic, went ballistic. I mean, you know, we, we reinforce this violence. Anyway, um, so even the reasonable standard, what it means to be reasonable. So when these parents go on trial, you better watch who the jury is, because maybe they say, oh, we're sympathetic. We understand you wanted to buy a gun. It was legal to buy a gun. I mean, that's a gift. I bought my son a gun. I mean, so I understand. You're not guilty. I mean, you so you know, here we go again. We're gonna go through this stuff again, right? Eventually, next year, year after, whenever they're uh, you know, the charge is brought and it survives the prima facie challenge and goes forward and may get jury selection. You make sure you get a jury in there that uh certainly they probably won't. I wonder what a prosecutor argue for a venue change. I mean, I'm just prefiguring the way we know these scripts go. You're gonna see the box that's probably gonna be all white or damn near all white, and then they're gonna appeal to that cultural gloss, that reasonableness standard is gonna find its way into it again. And the source of that reasonable standard is also the source of the common law, the cultural law, presumptions, cultural presumptions. So that's one source. And they're saying that, you know, go back to the Constitution, you know, you go back to the Declaration of Independence and then the federal Constitution, bringing the states together, you start thinking about this notion of what God, what are God-given rights? What are the rights we have? Now you start writing down rights. And when you look at the federal Constitution, they go through the three articles. They go through the division of uh, authority what they call separation of powers, executive branch, legislative branch, judicial branch. Okay, they get through the whole thing. They've over. It's like, huh, yeah. Well, wait, ho, James Madison, whoa, oh, hold on, man. What about rights of individuals? Oh, shit. <laughs> what? Yeah, because we handle the most important stuff. Well, I mean, I, I agree with Keith Oberman, who, you know, Keith Oberman is a funny dude, man. And one of the things he said a few years ago, and I kind of laughed when he said, he said, basically the Constitution is based, uh, the Constitution of the United States is basically a property document. It protects property. When you read the things that are protected, and then it's like, they get to the whole thing. It's like, oh, oh shit. Uh, oh yeah, individual rights. <laughs> okay, First Amendment. You got to admit, you didn't put that. No, you set up the structure. And now the first amendment, freedom of speech. Okay. Freedom of speech, freedom of association. People get to do what they want, who they want, how they want to do it. That is considered the source of a woman's right to choose whether to terminate a pregnancy. It is ensconced in something called the right to privacy, except the word privacy ain't used nowhere in that little document. So what has been happening, what happens is it is interpreted into the document by human beings. That's why I say you ain't got no rights. They can't be reversed. This is what Justice Beer was ranting about a couple of days ago from the bench. Just because we decided it before doesn't mean we can't overturn it. Right. Good point, Beer. That's a good point. Then Sotomayor is like, 
dude, you do realize that when you try this BS, the stench ain't coming off. John, get your boy. Ain't this your friend? Oh, uh-huh, uh-huh. Remember Citizens United? You used that First Amendment to say, because corporations are people, my friend, corporations have rights too. And including their among their rights are the rights to spend as much money as they want. Propping up political candidates and you can't do nothing about it. Johnny John, my man. Now, you know damn well corporations are not living and breathing human beings, but y'all interpreted that after the Civil War in a string of cases when most of the justices of the Supreme Court were ex-railroad attorneys. That's one reason why they, from the passing of the 14th Amendment to the end of the 19th century, most of the cases where, in fact, the overwhelming majority of cases that made it to the Supreme Court on 14th Amendment grounds, equal protection under the law, due process of law, were by railroad companies saying that their companies had the right to engage in eminent domain with, 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 with government institutions, dispossess land because corporations are people. And the court interpreted that way. Johnny John in 2010, and his he got enough numbers to back him to say corporations are people and they got First Amendment freedom of speech rights and it opened up the floodgates so that you can make it even easier to put these uh, corporate hacks into political office where they get to write the policy, like uh, Cosplay Coal Miner Joe Manchin in West Virginia and the energy company basically writing federal policy that gets enacted into law because Joe Manchin just turned the pen over to them in exchange for whatever two or three dollars him, his wife, his children get to be in their in their in their coal mining business, in their energy businesses, I should speak. Now, why the reason I'm bringing that up is that's the First Amendment. That's where Roberts has located his strategy to basically protect the rights of these elites. Now, in order for those elites to continue to have and exercise those rights, at least in the short term, They've got to continue to have rented politicians. And in order to get them rented politicians, they got to win elections. And in order to win elections, they got to somehow manage the people who are going to vote. So, of course, Coke and them are going to dump all kind of money into voter suppression legislation at the state level. Now, so the only hope you have is that the federal government will exercise some uh, break on what has always been a tenuous relationship a tenuous relationship between the states, many of whom are basically consuls for white nationalism, and the population, which is often, if it's non-white, in places where it can't exercise enough uh, voting authority to tip the federal legislature or the electoral college enough to protect its interests, particularly as the numbers continue to swell in, in terms of non-white people. Now, let me not get too, too far afield. I want to make sure I'm going to keep this, this line going. So, there are no rights except what can be enforced. The right to privacy is, is launched somewhere between the First Amendment, Fifth Amendment, Fourteenth Amendment. Once you say it's a right, then you got equal protection under the law, due process under the law. The Fifth Amendment is there, but after the Civil War, they passed the Fourteenth Amendment in part because you're expanding the notion of citizenship to all these people who were never supposed to be citizen, and you're trying to stop the states from depriving them of any citizenship rights. This is the Fourteenth Amendment in part as an attempt to negate Dred Scott, which ain't never been completely overturned. That's what Donald Trump and them would say, and I would agree with them on that. But what I'm saying is that in protecting these, these impulses, these white violent impulses that have found their way into the settler project at the state level, 
and are protected by this concept of federalism that basically says we're going to leave y'all alone as long as y'all don't get too out of hand. Now, I know that happened from 1861 to 65. Let's not do that again. But while you're doing that, all these other people are like, no, no, we're going to remake this country. It was never supposed to be, as Langston Hughes said in the 50s, America never was America to me, but this I vow, America will be. Well, that is going to create this constant tension with the compromise that has been struck in whiteness and the white elites who rely on that compromise to continue in their criminal enterprise, which is basically profiteering. This is going to make that real tenuous, especially when, I mean, so, so here there are several solutions you try. One solution you might try is, can we recruit enough of these non-white people into this criminal enterprise so they can kind of be a little bit of a safety valve to stop, you know, the rest of these people from trying to just basically wreck the whole enterprise we got? Well, let's see. We'll try to educate a few. We'll try to create a little black elite. We'll tell them they are the leaders of everybody else. And then they turn around and tell people, we just got to work a little bit harder. We just got to work a little. And, and then the mass of black people are like, okay, yeah, nah, because uh, I don't have no big house like you have. And why are you over there with them? I mean, so that tension continues to press. <laughs> Meanwhile, poor white people looking crazy at all the non-white people like, you giving them rights? Hold on, they don't mess my rights up. What, what right do you, what, what, what right are you trying to protect? I'm trying to protect your right to say the N-word. I got to get in my car and drive from Illinois to Wisconsin to defend my freedom. What is your freedom? My freedom to say the N-word and to feel better than y'all because even though I too am poor, I'm at least white. Well, y'all really bought that thing. Look, hook, line, and sinker, didn't you? Yes, and guess who else bought it? The federal polity because they protect me every time I come out here and, and wild out. How do they protect me? Well, they protect me by saying that the federal government really can't interfere with the states huh but you can't interfere with the states well no not really now i want y'all to pay attention to this come on you know the main time the federal government interfered with the state governments before the civil war the fugitive slave laws <laughs> y'all think about that you set up a federal entity where you say the state have rights, the federal government have rights, um, uh, have, have enforceability right, rights to enforce the laws, and that the states, I'm sorry, the federal government can't infringe on the rights of the states, except in very particular circumstances. One of them circumstances, in fact, the leading circumstance, in fact, probably the only circumstance in many ways, was the Fugitive Slave Acts, 1820, Compromise of 1820, 1854, so-called Bleeding Kansas, well, 1850, this Fugitive Slave Law being the main one, meaning what? If we were able to escape from a place where enslavement was and go somewhere where enslavement wasn't, the federal government said, we authorize a deputized people to take your ass back to slavery. What? <laughs> Dren Harriet Scott was like, we was up there in Minnesota and everything was cool. He took us back to Missouri. We suing again. Roger Tiny said, y'all ain't got no rights. Did we bound to respect? Well, damn. Yeah, y'all go find Dredd and Harriet Scott in the ancestor realm and ask them about what rights are. <laughs> you understand? Roger Tiny told them, no, nah, you ain't got no rights. Why am I bringing that up? Has that to do with abortion? Was it? Well, it's very simple. It's very simple, actually. What we saw argued in the Supreme Court last week is, an, is arguing about federalism. It's about federalism. So if you have the right to terminate a pregnancy in Maryland, but not Texas, in Pennsylvania, but not Mississippi, or if they can kind of, what they're really getting for, getting what they're really trying to get at is the idea that the states have 
the capacity to write their laws in ways that are protected from federal interference. So in that regard, the Mississippi law that says, you know, up to 15 weeks and that's it. Yes, it, this really isn't an argument, although you heard that in the orals last week. This really isn't an argument about viability. This really isn't an argument about how many weeks or no. This is an argument about what the federal government can and can't do in my state. And it's a very sensitive issue to be sure. Oh, I should put this footnote in. Because this is where you should start thinking about this in terms of science and technology. If you've got money, the decision is not going to affect you because you can get on a plane. Even if they if even if they realize their real fantasy, which is to ban it and all over the country, which would be almost in a sense trying to create uh, 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 taking that out as a possibility in any state like the Fugitive Slave Act, really. And it's, well, I'm going to get into that whole comparisons with Plessy and all that kind of thing, because I'm the same deal with them white people on that. But my point is this. You get on a plane, you go to Paris, you can go wherever you want, terminate a pregnancy. If you're poor, you're not going to be able to do it. But what happens as the science continues to quote unquote advance and you get pregnant and you go to the doctor and they say, oh, this child has going to have a terminal disease or this child is uh, only going to be 5'2 and I know you want a ball player or this child may have brown eyes and you want blue eyes. I Don't, this ain't crazy. What I'm telling y'all is that what we are heading toward with the science and technology is a moment when the a decision to terminate a pregnancy and we already begin to seeing it now it's going to be informed more by more than you know i'm working or i'm doing this that's the argument they were having this week uh, you know roberts and them oh yeah well you know the things have improved for women and so there's no what are you talking about it's either a right or not a right oh it's not a right is it it isn't written in the constitution you can interpret this right out of existence and this is what uh um kavanaugh was talking about in terms of overturning president so so the first issue is federalism they want the federal government out of their business this has been the truce in many ways that has allowed this country to continue as a federal entity and it has often come at the expense of the people who did not have political power it is it was the betrayal of reconstruction when they passed the 13th 14th and 15th amendments and then the federal government didn't have the guts to continue to enforce it and then the supreme court they had the numbers whether it be Cruikshank in the 1870s the civil rights cases in the 1880s to begin to pare back the notion of uh, um of protection of rights now they haven't gotten rid of it completely and if you want to understand how important it is that that how important that federal legislation was there are still laws on the books from the Reconstruction era that are still good law. We talked about that. I think we talked about it last week when I mentioned it with Charlottesville, the Civil Rights and so-called Ku Klux Klan Act of 1871, the third, the third Enforcement Act, the Civil Rights Act of 1866. These were the laws that were passed, one before the 14th Amendment, the uh, other one to go after the Klan that are federal acts that allow the federal government to intervene at the state level. And, that's, and they used the Ku Klux Klan Act of 1871 to go after them white boys down there in Charlottesville because they basically, that Unite the Right rally was a Klan rally. It's a white supremacist rally. Then y'all kill people, including that white girl, Heather Hare. And so they were able to use that federal law, which is still good law. This 1871 on the book. So pay quick and strict attention to what the government can and can't do and what judges can or can't do, because really their powers are expansive if they choose to implement them. So in this Mississippi case, what you have at trial and what you said, Professor Hunter, what you basically are seeing is the federal judiciary 
has now been positioned to continue its kind of, uh, the, continue the federal government's kind of fop to these populations that really define what it means to be American and must always uh, be part of the calculus of taking into, into, into mind how, how little can we, no, how should I put it? How much do we have to concede to them in order to keep the country together? That's what that is. And at the same time, what you see being now debated, and this is where it gets a little bit more interesting. Now I want to go to the, uh, to the, um, to the governance structure for a second. All that social structure. Here's the that. So let me just let me let me let me summarize that because people may not be be following me because I'm kind of doing this in real time. The social structure we find ourselves in in this moment is a United States of America that is increasingly non-white, that is based on a federal system that relies for it to stay together on concessions to whiteness that are that are literally geographical. So everything from the electoral college. Uh, all you know to to two senators from every state being in the federal legislature which means they'll be able to block this and create minority rule for some time to come and in order to continue to uh to win these elections and put these people in place that will enable to continue this white notion to continue and also allow the corporate elites and those who make all the money and have all the resources to continue what they're doing unimpeded You've got to give them some anchoring cultural issues of which abortion is one, because this is all part of that white Christian centric notion. Again, this has nothing to do with what your opinion is or what your values are in terms of whether or not to terminate a life, when life begins, all that. We're going to come to that in a second. But this is the social structure we're in. At stake is the concept of the polity itself, because you have made a deal literally with the political and cultural devil. And at the center of that political culture and devil is the violence of whiteness. And that violence of whiteness from Montana and Idaho, from North and South Dakota, that, that violence of whiteness in those vast expanses of the country where ain't a whole lot of people, but they get more political weight than they should get, is what allows the entity to come together. Even as more and more people come into the country, either through somebody's womb or off a boat or plane or train or whatever, who are not buying that, but they're not moving into them other places, so you're not going to be able to tip the scale anytime soon. So that's the social structure we find ourselves in. The governance question is a different question, but of course, this is the one we're interested in. At the In the governance conversation, when we start talking about this Mississippi case, for example, we're really thinking about who we are to each other, who are African people to each other. First of all, there's no definition of Black. Much of the definition of Black is really a social structure definition. Who are these people who we're calling black people to other people? They are black people. I'm from Barbados. I'm from Trinidad. I'm from Ghana. I'm from California. I'm from Tennessee. I'm from Jersey. Okay, but all of y'all are black. Okay, how does that work? Well, it works like this. If you're in a car and we stop you, you're all black. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, damn. <laughs> that's a social that's a social structure definition. Now, unfortunately, because we spend so much of our imagination in the social structure and not the governance structure, we then began to assume that that from without definition carries with it certain obligations in the governance structure. And it doesn't. So we see black people behave in certain ways and we say, you black, you shouldn't be doing that. OK, what are you basing that concept of blackness on? No, if you don't have a definition 
of your communities that is grounded in your experiences, your culture, your memory. And this is something that is constantly having to be redefined, renegotiated, rethought, because we don't have the momentum of memory that we should. This is the fundamental challenge of Black studies, of Africana studies, which is why you can't leave it to the universities to do. You've got to reconnect and redefine every generation, and that requires remembering. But except if you go into university for that, here's your problem. The universities are set up to feed the social structure, not your governance structure. And said, that's not true. What about HBCUs? No. No, black is an adjective in that concept construct. Historically, black colleges and university. What's college and university? College and university mean white, means Western, coming out of medieval Europe. These HBCUs are not anchored in the learning institutions of Africa. They are anchored in black versions of the learning institutions of medieval Europe, mm. and their job is to feed the social structure that exists. Does that mean they want to live in the social structure as it currently exists? No, it doesn't. That means they want to change it. They want to adjust it. But there's only so far you can go before the social structure says, hey, you ain't, mm -mm, that's too much. And just in case you think that HBCU can get out of line and really be black, they got a fail safe called accreditation. <laughs> Middle states, sacks. In other words, now hold on now. Y'all black, but y'all can't be that black now. We don't mind having black people have this. But if you start talking about too far off in these curriculum changes, too far off in this redefinite, that ain't what you're doing. And guess what? It has worked well for a small group of black people. It has worked well for a small group of black people. These are not sellouts. These are not Uncle Tom's. These are not people who are against the race. They they think they're helping the race. I remember fraternity was founded in 1906, today, 1906, December the 4th, 1906, Alpha Phi Alpha. I joined because I looked at the icons like Paul Robeson and Martin Luther King and Duke Ellington. I looked at Jesse Owens. I looked at W.E.B. Du Bois and Charles Hampton Houston and Thurgood Marshall and said, I want, these people are models for me because I'm in college. I want to be like them. I want to move and make a contribution. And the older I got, the more I studied, the more I understood that this is a complicated thing you're trying to get in because these are people who more often than not are either uh, going to attack this structure with the idea that it can be perfected or going to attack it with the idea that it can be restructured, at which point the, the structure is going to turn against them, C. Du Bois and Paul Robeson in particular. But that haven't been said. In the governance structure, as it relates to a woman's right to choose terminate pregnancy, this Mississippi case, there are also class issues that aren't discussed in polite company. But we're going to discuss them now for about five minutes. And this, Professor Hunter, is when you brought up, you know, the fact that we're really not talking about attitudes in black communities. First of all, there is no black community. We've established that. We I should, let me let's stipulate that. Let's not say we're going to establish it. Let's let's stipulate that our definition of blackness should be lined out first before we start getting anything else. But in the governance structure, who are these people who have been labeled black to each other? Who are these people to each other? We then find that culturally there's a varying range of opinions and that the right to privacy that extends into a right to terminate a pregnancy can often be disaggregated by class. It, it's certainly informed by different ways of knowing. There are various ways of knowing and that there's a real internal 
debate, discussion, argument within communities that are that are labeled black that we have to take very seriously and take them as distinct from arguments in a social structure that is dedicated to preserving settler colonial whiteness as the only way it's going to continue its enterprise in its current form. So people come to you and say, and I just passed, in fact, I passed uh, a Planned Parenthood clinic walking in North Nashville when I was home last week. And I saw maybe a couple of dozen protesters, you know, in the Bible Belt. I would say of that couple of dozen, two thirds of them were white and the rest were black. And they had, you know, as you, any of y'all who've ever been and walked past or, or seen, or maybe some of y'all even participated in one of those protests, you see the signs with, you know, dismembered fetuses and, and, the, and the slogan here, and, and you see the people going into the clinic and you see the people outside, we're praying for y'all. And I'm thinking, if the police roll up here right now, you black people out here with these signs are at a risk that these white people are not. Because it might look like y'all all agree, but in a social structure where race can get you killed if you're the wrong race, there's never going to be solidarity that's going to advance your interests in the same way it's going to advance everybody else's interests. Now, I'm not saying you should be out here protesting or you shouldn't be out here protesting, but you must always understand that blackness operates in a field of violence in racial race-based societies, in white-based societies. That means your interest can never be the same. So when people come and say, well, you know, y'all should, should be with us. It's murder. Yeah. And then the response is, well, yeah, you care about babies till they're born. But then what? And then you know, and, and I heard at the protest, they were out there protesting. And they said, you know, we'll adopt these babies if you bring them. And I said, OK. All right. And I'm thinking to myself, I don't know if I want my black child raised by Amy Comey Barrett. And then she raising black children. Right. She and her husband. But phenotypically black again. Blackness being a label, not a cultural grounding necessarily. I, mean, I don't get too far in that because that's the whole notion of race-based adoption. And there's a whole field of study and argument and debate. Shout out to my people at the National Association of Black uh, Social Workers who have done all that work, led in that work for years. But in the governance structure, there is a raging debate, discussion, argument about terminating pregnancies. And sometimes, a lot of times, there's a question of class involved. It's not polite. We've talked about it before. I've referred to, you know, books like Shermella Sherman's book where she talks about at the turn of the 19th into the 20th centuries. And then into the uh, 20th century, you see black, quote unquote, elites proposing a kind of social Darwin version, uh, uh, you know, a, a social eugenics version where you say, you know, you should only marry or have children with blacks of a certain economic status and quote and this kind of thing and that debate has always raged around in our communities well you know the idea the stereotypes that the farther you down you are in the social structure are some of these people using terminating a pregnancy as a form of birth control what are your morals what are your values whoa it gets real murky and messy but all of those conversations in the governance structure are taking place in a social structure where anti-blackness is the rule and not the exception. And anti-blackness is defended by a federal polity that is always fragile and that is committed to preserving some iteration of white control. If for no other reason than the architecture of the project will collapse otherwise, is they have too much power to not concede. And so let me just tie this up. When Sotomayor says she's worried about the stench, 
when she's basically talking to John Roberts. See what you did? Look what you've done. You weaponized the white elites to pump as much money as they wanted to in this thing. You then turned around and slapped all the voting rights. You punched that in the stomach. So now you really curtailing people's voting rights. That combined with all that money, you basically created Frankenstein. And now you sitting here, you know you wasn't for Kavanaugh like that. You know you and Call Me Barry. Yeah, y'all might have prayed together. About it. And then you counted up the cost. And you looking over Clarence Thomas. He looking at you like, <laughs> I'm one of them phenotypical blacks. <laughs> really, I'm with the white nasses. And Johnny John, you're a white nasses too. But now you're scared. You're scared, aren't you? Because see, if you go back to John, uh, to John Marshall and, uh, and uh, not Johnson versus McIntosh, oh, Marvin versus Madison, where John Marshall, the Supreme Court justice, is credited with establishing the authority of the Supreme Court. I mean, you know, he says, you know, the, the job of the Supreme Court is to say what the law is. And no, the job of the Supreme Court is to interpret the law until the people decide the Supreme Court didn't have any legitimacy because you didn't done something we don't like. And what Sotomayor is telling you is, I don't care how many elections you fix. I don't care how much money you pump in to steal elections. You have you are now on the verge of basically doing something that's going to have people say we don't care about the Supreme Court. And guess what? Every chief justice of the Supreme Court understood that that was possible. John Marshall understood. Oliver Wendell Holmes understood. Uh, what's my man? Um, um, the governor of California. Uh, Warren understood. Berger understood. In other words, they understood the court can only go so far before the people reject the idea that the court has the authority or that they have to uh, abide by the laws. Now, you've let white people do that forever. You let white people thumb their nose at the law forever. But guess who is going to start thumbing their nose to the law soon? everybody else or guess who's going to test the limits of the law that you say is the law you let the white boy buy a gun he come to school start shooting people you let these trench coat mafia go up in colorado they shoot everybody up all these school shootings well guess what here come the black kids with the guns oh wait a minute hold on we gotta have some gun control law yeah y'all tried that when the panthers did it in the 60s in, in california but now when you now here's the problem when you then start passing the laws to have gun control guess who you're gonna piss off all them people you look to for your political support, the country's going to fracture because you've invested too deeply in a white racial state. Mm -hmm. And so, 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 so let me wrap this up. In terms of ways of knowing, thinking about the, cult, the, the, the this question of this abortion case, Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization in the context of our Africana Studies framework. So the social structure, you got a question of federalism. They're trying to they're trying to make concessions, but now you got to the point where some of these cats in Mississippi and Texas and these places controlled by these white nationalists who have done that through voter suppression and other tricks have gone too far. So you got a version of what happened in the 1850s, and it's just brewing. It's just brewing. In the governance structure, you got black folk trying to create this notion of a common black community, having arguments and debates about the substance of a question of terminating a pregnancy. But that's a different issue than this white state trying to negotiate to keep itself together. In the ways of knowing, you've got a deeper issue. What is the concept of life? What is the notion of relationships? What is the relationship of uh, concepts of life and relationships to sex and sexual intercourse? When you start looking at the question of how, quote unquote, black people value life, you can't look at black people as defined by the social structure. You have to look at definitions we're coming up with based on extensions of African cultural practices that have been remixed in the diaspora 
added to, subtracted from, changed. And what you see is you got to ask yourself, a fun, let's ask ourselves a fundamental question. What were practices of terminating pregnancy prior to coming to America? Was it possible? Sure. Were there children who were, quote unquote, thrown away after birth in African societies? Yes, there were, depending on taboos, depending on cultural postures toward everything from twins, Ibeji, for example, in Yoruba, for example. I mean, it's, it ain't all pretty. Mm. At the same time, what are the rates of terminating pregnancy around the world? And do they, are they related to cultural practices in those other places? So you can't just assume that people would terminate pregnancies everywhere in the world the same way based on a, on a shared cultural understanding. You've got to ask yourself the question. Are the answers you come up with, you come up with on your own. But the questions you must ask, you can't assume that the way it's done in the United States is the way it's going to be done everywhere else. But these are different These are questions of ways of knowing. Now, in terms of science and technology, we are now on the verge of, as a species, being able to curate humanity. What does it mean? in a world where you can literally create the kind of baby you want. What does terminating a pregnancy look like at that point? When you say choice, what does that mean? What does it mean? I choose to bring this baby to term. Okay, why? Because this baby I've checked is genetically the baby I want. Hmm. Wait, no, wait, wait, what? What the hell just happened? <laughs> what just happened? See, the law is not static. When you say you have rights, don't think of rights as immutable things that exist over time and space. You think about natural law, and even that is a cultural creation, a cultural law, common law. No, no. You have to think about every human, quote unquote, right as operating in a context of culture that is always changing. This wouldn't have been an issue 100 years ago. 200 years ago in the way that it's an issue now. And it's not going to be an issue the way it is now, 20 years from now, not 200, not 50. Just like 20 years ago, we wouldn't be having this conversation right now, streaming. 20 years from now, can you imagine? I went through the tests. Uh, you know, when does life begin? Well, hell, the scientists may get it down to the point where <laughs> you come in the day after you had sex. Now what you going to do? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And then finally, in terms of movement and memory, how did or do African people remember our history, our moments? We call Rosa Parks the mother of the civil rights movement. When we use the language of mother and father, there is a patriarchy of sorts that operates, uh, not of sorts, there's a patriarchy that operates in many societies, certainly in these Western societies and these white settler colonial societies. But when you start talking about how people of African descent have looked at children, you think about violence against children in the settler state being the thing that often caused us to come together, like Emmett Till or Trayvon Martin or Sandra Bland, who was not a child, but a young person. We do embrace our children. When you look at the fact that, as John Henry Clark used to always say, you know, you look at African languages, you study African people, and you don't find a word for orphanage because they would never have an orphanage. The idea that you would have children someplace because they don't have no family or no community or nobody. So you create a community of children. Uh, footnote, 
I can't. I'm sorry. I know y'all love Annie. I don't know what Professor Hunter. Let me pause to ask you a question. Why they? Why would? Why would we want to make a black child and black children or a black girl even the face of a depression era story with all kind of predator adults, including a main male character named Daddy Warbucks? I thought we were against that kind of thing. <laughs> Help me understand. It's a hard not life for sure. But I mean, I'm just trying to understand what is the pathology behind wanting to be Annie? I, I don't help me understand that, please. Because we don't think. We're not Ooh. thinking. It's it's music. It's great. That that song, the song's Taraji. Oh, she sang, she was great. You know, we 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 love the performance and we we don't think. We don't, we're not processing these things collectively. Not we, but, but, but it's, it's so. I mean, look, it's obvious to you. Is in jail, <laughs> it was a mute R. Kelly. Then you got a cat named Daddy Warbuck. I'm saying, just on the white version. If you go back to the any little orphan, any strips of the 30s, and then I mean, it, instead of mm, 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 instead of tricks, we get tricked. Instead of titty, we we get kicked. What the hell? You can't fix that, y'all. It can't be fixed. <laughs> it look put it this way. If if a black little orphan Annie showed up, and I know they tried, didn't they try with Jamie Foxx to make Daddy Warbucks black at some point? Yes, yeah, I saw that. Yes, yeah, yeah. Move Daddy Warbucks. Do y'all? Uh, you know who Daddy Warbucks was in the 1930s? Prescott Bush, George Bush granddaddy, the war, <laughs> the munitions profiteer, helping to helping to supply the Nazis. Warbucks, you know what Warbucks is? That's Carlisle Group. Do you do what he got money? Oh, let me not even. I mean, but but that's the insanity, right? It's insane. That's the insanity in which we live every day and don't even question a challenge and go through a no indictment because hell, we all Jay Z got a whole ass intro to. I mean, we it's part of our culture, right? This, this, it's part ignorance. of ignorance for sure. Yeah, this ignorance mm -hmm. uh, is as American as apple pie. As and, American as apple pie. Yeah. I mean, it's really, it's really, so anyway, that, that was the footnote. I was saying they're coming to the little orphan Annie, but as John Henry Clark would say, you wouldn't have no orphanage because we don't worry for orphanage because you wouldn't need an orphanage. So the idea then coming back into it of, you know, where we are in this whole conversation about, you know, and again, abortion is a serious issue. Terminate pregnancy is a serious issue. And as a man, as a male, Man is a gendered construct biologically as a biological male who, you know, cannot bear a child, cannot bring a life into the world through my body. You know, there is a certain hard wall, at least until these scientists, I won't be around for it. <laughs> because, I mean, we already have seen during our lifetimes able to create, uh, bring to, to, to uh, bring to viability a human being outside of the womb. So, I mean, hey. Remember when test tube baby was a pejorative? Ex oh, yes. <laughs> Professor Hunter, how many of our Nubian family don't remember that? They're too young to remember that. Now, test if you got children watching this, you tell them cover their ears. <laughs> Who's that? Robin Harris? Harris. <laughs> Who used to call yes. test tube baby? Right. It's like, wow. But guess what? We're on the road now inexorably. We are going toward that road, which is one reason why I, mean, I mentioned Terry Bissom a while ago in terms of science fiction. But that's one reason why science fiction is always good to uh, to read and to understand, because science fiction uses the future as a prompt. But quite frankly, it's always about the present. 
in the past. This is the genius of Octavia Butler, of course. This is the genius of, you know, Afrofuturism is as much about, in fact, uh, it's so funny. Uh, we saw this week that uh, our sister down there in Barbados, the prime minister, oh my God. elevated uh, our sister Robin uh, Rihanna Fenty to national hero. Don't you love to see things like that, Professor? <laughs> and, and that Mia Motley? Come on, Mia Motley is no joke, is she? It it is making me really look at Barbados. Like I, I, I immediately went on to get a ticket. I know I, that. I have to go there. Uh, and, and, and you got the two of y'all. I can't wait to the two of you all have a sit down conversation. Same, same. She you is. know that's Ooh. just is. And the beautiful thing about it is, and I think about that. Actually, we can talk about that for a second. I thought about it in terms of Afrofuturism because, and Uraeus will uh, will appreciate this. And I want to thank my brother. Uh, if y'all y'all know Uraeus, who is at the heart of our Nubia family and narrative also, family. Also, he's the founder of Black Heroes Matters. For those yes. Who, yeah, and there's yeah. his Black com He's in this book, all up in this book. Black Comics. Thanks, Uraeus. And invite you. In fact, I'm just going to show y'all because Uraeus is no joke. If I could find him. Yeah, Black Heroes Matter is his thing. In fact, or oh, I wish I could, if I could find it quick because his mm -mm -mm -mm, it's, it's going to take me more. It's take me longer than I want. All right, here we go. Is this Jason? Uh, yeah, Jason Wise. If y'all know the character Jason Wise, this is an African. Look at Reyes. This is him without the beard. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> so, but uh, Jason Wise, he's got this African American character. He says, at a deeper level, the character's mythology provides something more powerful, an alternate Black history denied to most African Americans, a continuity in fiction made impossible by the rupture in denied culture and history created by the African slave trade. The point is that his main character, Jason Wise, is a character who is, and in fact, yeah, you're right. You're right. Let me just let me just go ahead and uh, and put because he's right. Yeah, there goes Joan right there. Black heroes matter. <laughs> he sent me to join. Right. You gotta have real black heroes though. And this is actually the book, Jason Wise. This is Jason Wise the book? You see Jason Wise. That's his character. Jason Wise is an immortal black man who has existed throughout time and space. So he's not confined to no 1619 or no coming, you know, born on the water or any other kind of just deeply problematic concept like that. He lives through time and space. But that ties in some ways to Barbados in some ways, because this is a new book by Matthew Clark and Nigel Lynch. These are two Barbadian writers, Bayesian writers. They got a book called graphic novel called Hard Ears, where they go into this whole history of uh Barbados and the islands based on African history and culture, indigenous history and culture. The book is dedicated to anyone willing to pursue a dream. If you're young people, or even if you're not, and you're into comics, Uraeus is, of course, at the center of all this work. He really is not only deeply engaged, he's part of it, a central part of it, as we see. You know, he'll tell you, he'd be able to tell you better. Than that. In fact, we should probably talk about we should probably talk about this on Monday during office hours he but him. he's he's sitting there he's sitting there right so he's got all the th this hardy is word of hardy is with jumbies and duppy and vibes it's a whole concept of how this free island moves through time and space through for example land ships land ships are if i just read it says land ships serve as the island's most po po powerful means of internal and external defense 
The vessels of the land ship are not real ships, but instead are ancestral spirits joined by the rhythm of each ship's tuck band and guided by its crew. I mean, it's just, it makes you, it forces you into ways of knowing that feed our governance structures and don't feed them from the West. So what we see going on in Barbados, in other words, I'm reading this because it's by these Barbados cats who are writing about a, a world that you can dream and bring into being. And then I'm looking at Prime Minister Motley and I'm seeing that. And just to hear Rihanna's speech there with Charles sitting there, you ain't got nothing more to do with it anymore. And she repping Barbados hard. And I'm saying, this is a group of African people who have positioned themselves to dream a different world. And in dreaming that world, they're not dreaming by just making up something in the future. They are grounding it in their history and culture. And in grounding it in their history and culture, they are literally making a world. They're not trying to reform the Commonwealth. They're not trying to hold on to what France Fanon would call, among others, many others, a dying colonialism. Because make no mistake about it. That is what Macron was trying to do this past week with Josephine Baker. Josephine Baker, when he says to Josephine Baker that, you know, she's a symbol of unity and universality that she was not black before she was French. Come on, bruh. You're not talking about free to Josephine McDonald, are you? From East St. Louis? They got the hell out of the United States in part because when she was a little girl, they had the race riot in East St. Louis in 1919. You're not talking about Josephine Baker, are you? Who made it her business to come back to the United States and say, I've been fed it all over the world. I'm treated this way in Europe and in France in particular. And I come here, can't get a cup of coffee. You're not talking about that same Josephine Baker in 1963 was at the March on Washington who spoke that day. One of the few women, should have been a whole lot more women, but one of the women who spoke was Josephine Baker. Uh, Macron, why are you talking about this universalism when y'all are not only dogging immigrants in France, you got this cat, Eric uh, Zemmour, who is uh, just announced a presidential bid, this media guy who is a hard white nationalist. And, oh, you afraid you're going to lose the election? Oh, I see. So we all French before we black now. So you're going to take some dirt from Monaco, some dirt from St. Louis, some dirt from different places, and, and put up in a, 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 a casket and make this cenotaph for Josephine Baker and put her into the pantheon and say she ain't really black before she French. You trying to hold on to a dying colonialism because you must think we blind. While you treating Josephine Baker like that, the people who look like Josephine Baker in the streets of Paris are getting treated like S. So let's be clear. This is not going to work. But in Barbados, they cutting ties. Now, whatever arguments they're going to have, what are the real challenges they're going to face? Whatever, whatever the afterlives of colonialism that will live in their minds and their memories that cats like Clark and Lynch are trying to dismantle by having us dream a world based on the cultures of Africa and the indigenous cultures, by the way, because those people were not completely uh, wiped out. People think, in fact, there's an interesting book uh, called Indigenous Resurgence in the Contemporary Caribbean. It's a lot of these, those people still live in those islands. Everybody wasn't killed in the Caribbean, including Barbados. And of course, we know Barbados is particularly important because that's that British sugar island. That's where they begin to really perfect uh, this notion of British style um, 
monopoly capitalism built on enslavement. In fact, our friend and brother, the great Harold French, in his book, Born in Blackness, talks about that, how Portugal leads out, and then eventually Spain and them come in, and France and them, but Great Britain, Barbados is the key for them. So when Barbados says, get your hands out of my pocket, bye, come here, uh, Rihanna, good national hero, okay, and then we're going to drink, oh, Charles is sitting there, yeah, you better keep that mask on, because I'm sure you was like, yeah, you would put your mask on, bro. Because <laughs> this one's got to hurt. This was y'all's baby. <laughs> you understand? This was the one that you brought us to. They launched your whole criminal enterprise. It wasn't North America, American exceptionalists. It ain't no Mayflower, Massachusetts Bay. It wasn't Virginia, Jamestown, 1619, rigmarole. No, it's Barbados. It's Jamaica. It's those British colonies and possessions. So that must have been tough for them. But I think we have to think differently now about the world we can live in. And the world we can live in has to be a lot bigger than conceptually the United States. It has to be, we have to take the same type of attitude as Africans anywhere in the world who say we must now rethink and reform the way we want to live. And I just kind of begin, begin to close with, with a couple of very specific examples. Again, this, this early first week of December to give us the possibilities. When Rosa Parks engaged in her quote unquote sitting stand there, and I was uh, uh, reading some correspondence from my friend and brother Paul Lee um, talking about the life of Rosa Parks. Mrs. Parks, who was uh, a member of the community of the Shrine of the Black Madonna, uh, in Detroit, uh, Reverend Jeremogi, who we uh, know as Albert Clay, who probably some people know her, his daughter, the novelist Pearl Clay, mm -hmm. um, who wrote a fantastic play called Flying West about the black towns of the of the of the West. If you ever see, if you ever get a chance to, to see Pearl Clay's play, Flying West, you think about Black Wall Street, go see that first. Because it gives you the whole sense of those Africans who went out there. These are these are maroons in, in for, for all intents and purposes. And she deals with class, all this kind of thing. But her father, the founding bishop of the Shrine of the Black Madonna, um, Rosa Parks very close to them. Uh, Mrs. Parks, of course, who worked for Congressman John Conyers, uh, who was in the office when they called for help in Mississippi, where those Detroiters had gone down there, the Henry brothers, and she sent people down there. And some of the people who went down there included Chopa Lumumba. Uh, that was the Republic of New Africa. Rose Parks is at the center of all that conversation. So I was reading some correspondence with, between Paul Lee talking about that. And, and, and the reason I raise it is because that Montgomery bus boycott that Miss Parks from Tuskegee, Alabama was from, that, that Montgomery bus boycott that Miss Parks, who says one of my earliest memories as a little girl was sitting at my grandfather's knee and going to sleep with him in the rocking chair with a rifle over his lap because he said, if the Klan come here tonight, I'm going to get as many of them as I can. And she said, I just wanted to see what was going to happen. <laughs> in other words, Miss Parks had a, from a little girl, she had a history of not taking no stuff. Miss Parks, who follows in the wake, of course, of Claudette Coleman, the young sister who is still alive now in New York, who resisted, and the other teenagers, especially there in Montgomery, Alabama, who fought with those white boys driving those buses. Uh, Mrs. Parks, unfortunately, that the social structure, shout out to Mattel. We see you. Did you see Professor Hunter? Did you see a Rosa Parks doll? Uh, Mattel, yeah, they have, uh, they have a, Ava, they have a bunch of, yes, I have, yeah, but the one with Rosa Parks, I've seen it, I've seen it, I, with the bus, yes, I, I was like, what the hell, y'all got a toy Cleveland Avenue bus, this shows you how the social structure don't understand, nobody wanna, Miss, are you serious right now, and of course the bus, 
that literal Cleveland Avenue bus is at the Henry Ford Museum. We ain't gonna talk about Henry Ford. This social structure, boy. Anyway, but yeah, but we are sucked into it. Sucked into it. And I know somebody bought it. Oh, many people. Not knowing, thinking that they're honoring. I'm just saying. So what do you do when you get the Rosa Parks doll and the Cleveland Avenue bus? And maybe my eyes are failing me, but the pictures I saw looked like it was a bus driver in there. Wait, so <laughs> maybe not. Let me, let me see that. Okay. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe not. I don't know. I I don't, you know, I'm but either way. I'm saying you re y'all really want us to live in the American imagination on these buses, don't you? You want to stick Rosa Parks on that bus. You want to stick John Lewis on that bridge. You want to stick Martin Luther King on them steps. In other words, that's who we are to you. But no, that Montgomery bus boycott in the spirit of Prime Minister Motley, in the spirit of these Africans, in the spirit of Josephine Baker, who is buried in Monaco and the family said, no, nah, we ain't bringing her to the Pantheon. We'll send you a couple of handfuls of dirt to put in the casket and y'all can have a cenotaph. But let's be clear, she's a citizen of the world. I know Macron, you want to make France, France, but go ask Toussaint Louverture how that worked out. We overflow your fake lines. And even in a place like Montgomery, Alabama, read my friend Robin Kelly's book, Hammer and Hole, where he talks about Alabama communists during the Great Depression. You know, even in a place like Montgomery, Alabama in the 1950s, you know, Mrs. Parks and Raymond Parks, her her, her, her husband and, and E.D. Nixon, Edgar Daniel Nixon, who we've talked about, and all those Africans in Montgomery, they were on the verge of a social transformation that wasn't just about treatment on a bus, that wasn't just even about segregation. During that year, the Montgomery bus boycott, it was the governance structure that allowed them to not only sustain the bus boycott, but to break the back of segregation until, I mean, think about the genius of that. The great Fred Gray, who still walks the earth in his 90s, still practicing law. Fred Gray, who we talked about being um, Claudette Colvin's lawyer. And those other children whose parents stood for them, and that becomes the Supreme Court case, Browder versus Gale, that breaks the back of segregation. But they got to keep the boycott going. So what do you do? You got black taxi companies. You got black people put money together and bought cars. You got black insurance companies insuring the cars. You got black people sending money from all over the country. When they get the money in Montgomery, they put it in black banks all over the South. This is a governance structure story. But the social structure just wants the piece where a lady with a pillbox hat got treated bad, got her mugshot taken, and a preacher from Atlanta came and gave some great speeches and then we went from there to the fire hoses and the dogs and then we went from there to the marches and then we went from there to the civil rights act and then we went from there to Barack Obama what the hell else do y'all want no that's a social structure story and all you Negroes trying to jazz it up with some great black earrings and some bracelets and some beautiful black clothes so that you can say me too y'all keep all that born on the water stuff there with you because the governance structures of African people are what grounded that. And here's where we have to learn from these experiences. The response of that 1955 to 1965 corridor, what's called a quote unquote civil rights movement, even though we know those numbers are kind of arbitrary, but leading to the Civil Rights Act of 64, the Voting Rights Act of 65, Fair Housing Act, we kind of see that aside 68. But the response to that, the white lash to that, what Dylan Rodriguez, among others, would call, and I love the way the title of this brother's book, Dylan Rodriguez, by the way, a brilliant book that he's just published called White Reconstruction. That's from the 60s forward. And if you think that terminating a woman's right to choose to terminate a pregnancy is not part of that, white reconstruction at the center of white violent nationalism is patriarchy. 
So you said, well, they have women on the Supreme Court. I mean, Amy Comey Barrett. Amy Comey Barrett is part of that white nationalist extremist core. Look at her religious faith. In other words, I'm with y'all. That's why some people nicknamed her the handmaid. In other words, patriarchy is at the center of this. It's at the center of this project. So what I was saying is what we have to learn from this moment, from these moments like the Montgomery bus boycott, with the anniversary of which starts tomorrow, December the 5th, 1955. We have to learn is that when we have been able to make some form of change in any of these uh, difficult arrangements, whether it be Africa, the Caribbean, in the case of Barbados, what we just saw, or even here in the United States, they have come from within our communities. They start anchored in the governance structures that we are able to build in spite of how we have been attempted to be defined from without. They haven't come because of some concession outside and the concessions that were made outside when they were made were to continue the enterprise, including the civil war. But we were able to disrupt. We have to remember that. Um, I'm going to end now. No, with... don't, don't. Oh, go ahead. What are you in? No, go ahead. What are you going to say? No, I was just, I was just going to um, shout out Brother Az from across the pond. Yes. Um, and I'm confused by this. Uh, the New York Times has uh, the canonization of John Coltrane, Saint John Coltrane. I'm yes. Like, have you you read? I'm sure you read. I did it. read it. Oh, yeah, I absolutely read it. I mean, he, the guy doesn't understand, but I wouldn't expect him to. Okay. I, I wouldn't expect him to. So we Actually, it's a beautiful story. It's a beautiful story. Should I? Should I? Okay, I'm gonna. I'm, I'm gonna do this right quick. This could be a office hours conversation. No, no, no. We should have an office hours conversation. But as brought this up, and I want to actually put this in the context of something else that we didn't talk about today. Um, what we are seeing, and actually, we can use this, John. We'll close it. We use John Cole. And thank you, as absolutely, because the guy who wrote that article, um, it isn't in today's paper. It's it's dated on the website as December the fourth. But the guy who wrote the article is actually the editor of the New York Times Style magazine. So I'm looking forward to reading, rereading the article that's on the New York Times website. I'll look forward to reading it tomorrow in the Sunday Times because it's going to be in the Style magazine because he's a style editor. He did a good job. I think he did a very good job if you're using as your lens the social structure. Who is John Coltrane to white America? Uh, but of course, we're not using that framework. We're not using that conceptual category. We're using the governance structure category. And if we, if we apply uh, the writer's um, article to the governance category, it falls apart. Now, let's just tie, for those of you who don't know what we're talking about, we're talking about John Coltrane, the great jazz musician born in High Point, North Carolina, um, raised for a time in Philadelphia, where he came to maturity in his teenage years, which is where he found uh, many of his uh, close collaborators who would take him through the end of his life. John Coltrane made transition in 1967. Um, Coltrane, uh, barely 40 years old. Was he 40 when he passed? Uh, cancer. Um, John Coltrane, of course, when we think of John Coltrane, we think of everybody has their favorite Coltrane's. I love Song of the Underground Railroad. And we've talked about John Coltrane many times. Uh, the incredible musician. I think about, you know, his Philadelphia comrades like the great McCoy Tyner. Of course, the, who was the la last of Coltrane's classic quartet to make transition. The piano player, young man out of West Philadelphia High School, the youngest of that crew, Jimmy Garrison, Elvin Jones, uh, Albert Eiler. I mean, just the great. The, in fact, shout out to him. We talked about when I came back from uh, Philadelphia for the John Coltrane Symposium, my dear friend and brother, um, um, Anya Buile Love, 
a professor at Community College of Philadelphia, brilliant brother who is the center and mounts the John Coltrane Symposium every year. They had it this summer. Um, but there was an article in the New York Times. Oh, go ahead. We're going to say. No, I just wanted to pause because I'm watching you because you didn't know I was going to bring this up. Ash dropped it. And I was like, I'm watching, yeah. I'm watching you remember in real time and how you are putting the pieces together, starting with his birth. And I'm just, it's, it's such an instruction mm. for how we need to remember things. Yes. You know, you do the genealogy, you do the birth and death, where he went. Yes. And then you're taking us through to Philly and you're literally putting together John Coltrane's life in your mind as you get to the point of the canonization because you need to frame for everybody who he is and as you're rolling it through because you weren't prepared. Otherwise, you'd have all of the books there. And yeah, no, yeah. Like, oh, in your mind, you're like, I know I have a book. Oh, that's in storage. Oh. Like, I'm watching you do this in real time and it's fascinating. So I just wanted to- Oh, thank you. No, no, no. Thank you because thank, thank you, Professor Hunter. Well, we know John Henry Clark, y'all, we say you got to keep your library in your head. You can't go get, if you're in an intellectual fight, you can't just go there. Hold on, let me, I got to the library. No, or oh, I got to go on the internet. No. You got to keep your library in here. So I, no, I appreciate that. And you're right. It is instructive in the sense that we we always start discussions of us with us. So the, so the writer of that article is writing about the fact that there is, in fact, a church in San Francisco, one that has its roots, I believe, in 1966. No, 64. Who that, I don't know who that is, but they're going to have to wait. Uh, who is talking about uh, th 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 there's a couple who put together something called the Church of, well, the church is canonized for St. John Coltrane. Well, John Coltrane can't be a saint. Uh, he got an archbishop of the church, Archbishop King, which is interesting. He and his wife, right? And say, so, well, they can't be, um, you can't have a church of John Coltrane. You can't have a church of John Coltrane. You can do whatever the hell you want. And this is the lesson for this. But the writer is fascinated by this church and it's, and it's trying to define the church in the social structure, which which makes sense. Hold on for a second. That's your book. You know that's a book. No, it may it may or may not be a book. <laughs> it may or may not be a book. Can you pull the article? I don't know if you can pull the article up and show. Right. Yeah, no, no, no. I will. I'll do that while you. Can, while can you, you do that? Take you. Let me remove you from the thing. Hi, everybody. All right, I'm gonna remove myself too, and we're gonna go find this article. And thank you, as brother, as for uh, pulling the article for us. It's in the New York Times. I'm going to get it. He just actually dropped the link. Uh, New York. Y'all seeing me do this in real time. John Coltrane. And then I'll pull it up. Uh, where, whoop. No, 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 no. Canonization. I need Google. I don't have that kind of brain, but it is very fascinating to watch Dr. Carr's methodology because I don't know if anybody else was taught you know how to think and process but I, I don't think we learned that in school so for me uh at this age this is where i'm learning it right here in class with car with the rest of you all right i have it i have it i'm going to share my screen and let me do this all of the multitasking all right share share screen and chrome tab the canonization of john coltrane here we go bam yes and i'm gonna go through it a little bit this is the the article and it starts the saint john coltrane in san francisco a branch of the african orthodox church where the jazz musician john coltrane is the canonized patron saint is a family affair it was founded in 1969 by his eminent archbishop fonzo w king dd and his wife the most 
Reverend Supreme Mother Marina King. I have questions. I have too many questions. All right. Before they possess such lofty titles, their daughter, the Reverend Chaplain Wanika Stevens, these sound like black people to me, is also a pastor there. The church began around 1964 as the jazz club in the couple's garage, a listening clinic. F.W. King, now 77, says on a recent Zoom call with his wife, 75, from their home in San Francisco's Bayview, Hunter's Point, their daughter, 57, also joined. Maybe less than a dozen brothers and sisters would come together every week. Everybody would bring a new album. We'd put the music on and start testing our ears and our knowledge, seeing if they could name the drummer or the piano player on a track without looking at the record sleeve. This is fascinating. This is fascinating. All right, let me bring Dr. Carr back in. Fascinating. Perfect, and, perfect. These are black people, right? These are, are they black? black? Yes. Yeah, they black. In fact, that, and this is the thing, could you scroll up a little bit? I love that John Coltrane. Right. Who, what's the guy's, uh, what's the I'm writer's sorry. name? Uh, Hold on. I thought uh, his name is uh, M. H. Miller. M. H. Miller. Okay, so we yeah, that's it. M. H. Miller. He's the style editor of the Times Magazine. You write it was a book, but anyway, so you know, always yeah. It, it, uh, oh wait a minute. Since since it was a book, can we let me stop my share? Can we, <laughs> can we do an unveiling? Yeah, yeah. This is uh um Amanda. This, this is, you know, there's a kid. Um, there's a kid on YouTube that makes millions of dollars opening uh boxes of presents and gifts and you know toys and things yeah i know i know there's books i know there's a store uh there's definitely a show here like, no, it's definitely no it definitely is dr Carr's box today this is that is true now this is from beacon press actually in boston uh amanda uh amanda frost's book you are not american citizenship stripping from dread scott to the dreamers she's actually a professor down the street at uh american university uh college of law and of course, the reason I'm interested in reading it is um, I want to see how she approaches this concept of citizenship. Citizenship is a concept that should be abolished. <laughs> it should be abolished. I mean, in other words, wh why should where you came out of your mother's womb determine what rights you have? It is absurd. And it is it is a every time I hear somebody say, well, you know, I'm a citizen, so I have rights. I wince. Because this is where Malcolm X would say, you know, and Malcolm said this, he wasn't the first, wasn't the last. But when we talk about civil rights, you immediately diminish the concept of humanity and link it to where you came out of your mother's womb. It's human rights. That's why Malcolm said we need to take the United States to the United Nations. Well, this is, these are human rights abuses. And in fact, the United States is always ready to invade some other country talking about human rights. But then when Sandra Bland gets killed, or Laquan McDonald, or you know, it, when you when you see that, and it's like, well, you know, what are the lo local laws? What the federal government can? No, hell no, we're taking your ass to the UN. This is genocide. We charge genocide anyway. So so no, but but this article. Um, thank you. Yes, that's the unveiling. So yeah, I, I don't know how they would pay us to to unveil books because then you had to read. I them. promise you. Right, it's a well, then you know what. I'm going to say less because you yes, are the mastermind and you know what. Okay. I'm, I'm going to say less. Y'all get ready. Y'all heard that, right? So keep, we don't want yeah, to happen. We, keep your new books in the box. And yes, ma'am. We'll unveil them. I will. I, I, then I'll, I'll do that. And actually, that'll give me a chance to, uh, to uh, yeah. yeah. You you know what? You're right. This is the genius of, one of the many geniuses of Karen Hunter. I'm going to stop right there. You, uh, you, man, you, just, you just impregnated me with some whole concept. Yes, yes, yes. But here's the thing. I love this article in part because it gives us a, a unique opportunity and we, we can spend a lot more time. And thank you, Oz, uh, 
for pointing attention to it because I would have been surprised otherwise tomorrow as I'm reading the paper tomorrow morning. Like, oh, oh, why they got a John Coltrane? But you, you, you know, I'd be on it. He all over all the, you know, he global on this. So he picked it up off the web. The thing that I thought found was fascinating was all the omissions that this guy made. And I know he's writing and he's got an editor and you got a certain word limit, but he's the editor of the style magazine, which means he could have made some choices. Here's some interesting choices. I'm just going to mention a couple. And maybe we talk about these again. Um, oh, and parent, let me just let me just say this right now before I forget. And well, I'll just put it here. I don't know if I would have forgotten it, but I want to put it here. Uh, yesterday uh, in 1921, my father was born in east tennessee so it's been his 100th birthday so yeah and i think about that a lot because you know my father was you know he and his brothers were drafted into world war ii hayward carr hayward haskell carr his father's name was haskell my grandfather and uh mother della who i never met made transition her in the 1950s his mom and he but he was a reader he was constantly writing stuff down, writing on legal pads. And I remember writing his obituary 20 years ago. He made transition in September 2001. You know, it's never, you know, he was sick, you know, cancer. Um, but he outlived all those people who died on September the 11th, 2001, because you never know. You just never know. Right. So, uh, but I remember, you know, going home to Nashville, writing his obituary. And one of the things, you know, I stressed in that for the program was that, you know, my father was an intellectual and in a different kind of world, in a different kind of than this godforsaken settler colony that tries to diminish people's humanity based on what the color of their skin, their culture, where they came out of their mother's womb. He didn't have the opportunity to pause, edit in real time. He did not have a pathway to intellectual work that included going to institutional education. I'm going to stop using the word opportunity. and You'll see why in a second. My father, who gave me my first money to buy comic books, um, and I bought that Archie comic book around the corner at Dr. Neely's store and came back. And I was like, I don't want this Archie comic book because I came this close to falling into the white girl trope. Betty versus Veronica. Y'all know, some of y'all know what I'm talking about. Go read those of Black Folk when Du Bois gave that Valentine to that white girl and gave it back and he kept writing about it for the rest of his life. Came this close. I remember reading I remember reading Souls of Black Folk one time at Howard, that little reading group. These cats want to sit together and read. And I had to, my students, it was, you know, women and men. It was about maybe eight or nine of us. We sitting around a little table on the third floor, found this library. We reading Souls of Black Folk. I'm talking. And then we get to that point where Du Bois talking about that white girl gave back to Valentine. And I said, uh, I know that white girl. And some of the sisters, some of the young ladies were like, what are you talking about, Dr. Carr? I said, y'all don't know that white girl? And my man, Jason Raven, who's a professor at Texas Southern University now, Jason looked at us, Dr. Carr, I know that white girl. <laughs> and if we started talking about that, <laughs> you know the white girl. In other words, <laughs> when you find yourself bust or put in these interracial classrooms as little children, these are the children who have not yet uh, embrace this notion of racial difference in a way that restricts them from interacting with each other. And if the girl, if the girl, little girls like the little boys, here come that white girl like you. I know that white girl. You know that white girl? Jason, I know that white girl. The smart black boys. Y'all, y'all know what I'm talking about. Anyway, so I brought that, <laughs> I brought that Archie comic book back. And then my daddy sitting there, well, this is what you want me to spend money on? I looked at it. This is a bad choice. I went right around back the corner, asked Dr. Neely, Dr. Neely, the pharmacist, can I switch comic books? And that's when they had the little uh, tower, the metal tower with the books. He said, well, go ahead, just as long as it's the same price. I put Archie back, 
Iron Man, Hulk. Hmm, Avengers, Defenders. Oh, it's a black dude, Black Panther. Avengers, I didn't even know who the Avengers were, the Defenders, but I saw the Black Panther fighting over the eye, the evil eye. And I'm like, this is black. And that's what started me. But my daddy gave me that money. He called them all funny books. He called them all funny books. There's a brand new book that's coming out that just came out on the history of Marvel Comics where the writer reads almost 27,000 comic books, all of the Marvel comic books. And he reads many of them with his son. And he talks about this whole process of, and I haven't uh, read the book yet. I was reading it in the New York Times review of books last week. Uh, Uno Diaz wrote a review of it and I'm going to get a copy of it soon. So I want to read this for myself. But it made me think about my father because, you know, my father valued reading and he subsidized my reading. My first and memories of reading as my father reading the newspaper. I'm too young. I don't even remember what I must have been two, three years old. I don't remember. All I remember is him coming to that little house on Lawrence Avenue in Nashville, Tennessee, reading that newspaper. And I'm saying all that to say that he lived his life as a reader, as a thinker. And what we're building here displaces formal structural education as the conduit to intellectual work. We must reject that premise wholly. So we say, well, he didn't have the opportunity to go to school. In some valences, that could be considered an opportunity if it increases your ability to earn money, if it gives you, yeah. But in other ways, it, 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 it withdraws from our community the idea that anybody can do intellectual work and everybody must do intellectual work. And one of our challenges in jailbreaking education is that we must have one foot always anchored in reading and study. Maybe we don't need grand narratives, 16, 19. Well, maybe we don't need grand narratives, but we do need deep awareness and memory. We need deep awareness and memory. So, you know, when we think about deep awareness and memory, we have to think about those who help us jailbreak the idea that you got to come into it from a certain way in order to acquire it. And that almost always includes, I'm coming out of the footnote now, back into the John Coltrane, that almost always includes those who are in the social structure, regardless of whether they mean well or not, this ain't no condemnation of anyone, but those who think they can narrate blackness for us in a way that really is about narrating blackness for them. It's not narrating for us. The life of John Coltrane is a great example, as is the church, as is this church. So when you see the Kings start this, as it says in the article, it starts with them meeting up in this little space, listening to records, talking. Do you hear? Can you identify who's on the drums? Can you identify who's on the saxophone? And so it starts with that. And then around 1964 and then again in 1965, they go see John Coltrane. Because the first time somebody brought a Coltrane album into the listening session, you know, King is like, yeah, it really didn't move me. But then he went. And he didn't say this, but I've heard it said so many times about John Coltrane. It's like somebody just took the whole top of your head, tore it off and poured everything in there. And then everything came out the way we talked about John Coltrane a few, a se several sessions ago, uh, August Wilson, I'll, I'll resist the urge to go over here and get the quote. When August Wilson says he wasn't even into that music. And then he's in Pittsburgh one day and he sees this, uh, this bar in the hood that he knows. And all these black people, hundreds of black people, he said, are outside the bar. They don't have the money to go in because the Negro bourgeoisie that can afford drinks is sitting in there. But he hears this music and he the closer he gets, he hears this horn and he says, and these, this is almost a direct quote from August Wilson. August Wilson is like, I see all these black people and they saw these brothers. He said, it's hundreds of N-words is the word that Wilson used. They out here listening and I realized they listening 
but they praying. He said the music is flowing from the bandstand over the top of these Negroes that can afford to have drinks and got the nice cars and you know what I'm it's flowing over the top of them and hitting all these black people out here that can't afford to go in there, but they're the ones who are really absorbing this. He said, that was John Coltrane playing that. He said, I heard that and I immediately went and got John Coltrane records. I couldn't, <laughs> he said, I couldn't, you know, that's when I, he said, I really wasn't into jazz, but Coltrane, and if y'all, as those of you who are John Coltrane aficionados, y'all know what August Wilson was talking about. You know what Archbishop Franzo King is talking about. But that turned them, and then, so their first move was to change the listening group into the Yardbird Temple Vanguard. The Yardbird Temple Vanguard Revolutionary Church of the Hour. What the hell is that? You don't understand writing for the New York Times. And maybe you did and the editor told you you had to cut something and you cut this. But you never mentioned in that article who Yardbird is. Yardbird is Charles Christopher Parker, Kansas City. You understand the genealogy of John Coltrane? As Dizzy Gillespie said at Louis Armstrong's funeral, they asked a white musician and a white musician said, Louis Armstrong, oh no, I'm sorry. Let me be very specific. They asked Bing Crosby <laughs> after, uh, after you know, Bing Crosby, who uh, did a lot of white-faced versions of uh, anyway, like an earlier version of Elvis, uh, earlier version of Eminem. I mean, I'm going to get too deep into that. I saw y'all already, somebody was, uh, what was my man? Uh, my man, Hassan Jeffries, brought up the Beastie Boys. Ain't nobody listening to no Beastie Boys. <laughs> I saw the name down in the shirt. Nobody listening to that stuff. I mean, if y'all did, no one would step on anybody's toes, but um, ben Crosby, after Louis Armstrong died, they asked him, who, how important was Louis Armstrong? Ben Crosby said, Louis Armstrong was the beginning and the, the beginning and the end of American music. It's a great tribute. Then they asked John Burks Gillespie from Cheeraw, South Carolina, the great Dizzy Gillespie. Who is Louis Armstrong? Gillespie said, know him, know me. That's the difference between the social structure and the government know him know me so in that article on coltrane that's in the new york times being the new york times tomorrow he mentions the fact that they changed that listening group into a church a way of knowing the yard bird temple except he never mentions who yard bird is but if you know john coltrane you know that john coltrane was transformed by charlie parker in fact in fact oh please come on ancestors somebody aha look at that women hold up hold up hold up because I, I always keep some Baraka around. He quotes a Mary Baraka. This is called Digging, the Afro-American soul of American classical music by the great Amiri Baraka, the man. And I am going to guess, give me a second, because I got to go through the table of contents and find till I find John Coltrane. Shouldn't take long, because he always talking about John Coltrane. Newark, Jazz and White Critic, Miles Davis, David Murray. Aha, John Coltrane, Why His Legacy Continues. Okay, one page, 192. Give me another 10 seconds, 192. Okay. First thing, first thing that Baraka says, why does his legacy continue to influence our lives, our music, and the arts? Uh, train emerged as the process of historical clarification itself of a particular social aesthetic development. When we see him standing next to Bird and Diz, Yardbird, Yardbird Parker. Yardbird means chicken. <laughs> Bird and Diz. 
And remember, John Coltrane played with Gillespie, played with Parker. He was younger than them. He was younger than Miles Davis who brought him in. John Coltrane is part of a genealogy. The article is focusing on this church, but to understand the church, you got to understand the genealogy of John Coltrane. Oh, wait till we get to this in a second. You're right, I ain't had time, but we'll talk about it again Monday. If you want you. There's an excited young inlooker inside the torrent of the rock. Mm -mm -mm. Pause. Here, Barack is using the language of governance, what we would call governance. He says, when we see him standing next to Bird and Diz, an excited young inlooker, he writes the word inlooker, not onlooker, inlooker, and he puts it in italics. That to me signals governance. Who are they to each other? Not the critics who would say they're writing music so fast that they don't even have titles. So you hear Gillespie call on the bandstand. Uh, let's do this one. And then they go into it. Two, three, four. They don't even have a title. So what did the critics start calling it? Bebop. They didn't give it that name, just like they didn't give it a name jazz, just like they didn't give it a name R&B, just like they didn't give it a name rap. These are the commercial social structure elements trying to figure out how to put a label on it so they can sell it. But you ask Parker, what do you call your music? Music. They ask Ellington, what do you call your music? I say this is music uh, with an African foundation interpreting an American experience. experience. They asked Gil Scott Heron, who was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. That ain't no tribute to Gil Scott Heron. The Rock and Roll Hall of Fame wants to remain relevant, just like Macron wants to wants France to remain relevant. You naming Josephine Baker to make yourself look good. It ain't got nothing to do with her. You naming Gil Scott Heron to make yourself look good. And I saw Dave Chappelle give a long speech about Jay-Z. I'm looking at uh, Dr. Dre giving a long speech about LL Cool J and all of them. Uh, it's great. Uh, it's wonderful. And then they didn't have a live tribute to Gil Scott Heron, the most important person they inducted that night. Why? Because we all know that this is some BS. I'm sorry, some of y'all, you know, the fact, <laughs> let me not even go. But anyway, when we see him standing next to Bird and Diz, an excited young inlooker inside the torrent of the rising bop statement, right next to the chief creators of that fervent expression of new black life, we are seeing actually point and line, note and phrase of the continuum as if we could see and as if we could also see Lewis and Bechet hovering over them. Louis Armstrong, Sidney Bechet, the clarinet player who spent all that time in Paris, right, with Josephine Baker and them. Sidney Bechet. Oh, man, that's a whole nother day. Mm, let me let me stop because all the answers is coming in. My man, Earl Father Hines, all the New Orleans Negroes. One more time. As if we could also see Lewis and Bechet hovering over them with prayers. That would be Lester Young. We talked about Billy Holiday and repressed Lester Young. Hovering just to the side, awaiting his entrance. And then beyond, in a deeper yet to be revealed hover, Pharaoh Sanders, Albert Eiler, David Murray, and Wynton Marcellus, Olu Dara, the father of Nas, in the midst. They are about to be when called by the notes of what had struck yet before all mentioned. That's one paragraph, but that ain't, Nothing from the line that this guy quoted in the article when he quoted Amir Baraka on John Coltrane. Why? Because it's about the church. But it is, it, is it about the church, really? When you say that before it was a John Coltrane church, it was the Yardbird church. But you didn't even tell people who Yardbird were. So they reading that, they don't understand. Then he goes on to say that this couple were friends with Alice Coltrane. 
they they chanted on her music that she recorded later you know she she had an ashram very important figure major figure uh they went to court because you know the coltrane family john alice coltrane sued them for not using the name but they they were friends and he gonna write about all that but then they moved and joined the african orthodox church that's in there what is the african orthodox church the african orthodox church told them well you can't make john coltrane god but you can make him a saint. Now you read the article, you'd be like, hey, what is the African Orthodox Church? And then they mentioned the guy who, uh, I think they may have mentioned, I don't know if they mentioned him. They may not have, but here's the point. If you're reading this article, you don't have any idea. This is where I'll close with this because maybe we pick this up on Monday. <laughs> Couple of things. Couple of things. You mentioned that the St. John Toll Train Church is part of the African Orthodox Church. Gives a whole new definition to AOC, doesn't it? But at any rate, the African Orthodox Church. The African Orthodox Church comes out of the governance structure. And you never get a clue from that article of what the African Orthodox Church is. Two things. Let's go to the ways of knowing category. In Africana spiritual formations and traditions, the idea of God is not a an anthrocentric idea. In other words, fingers and hands, God spitting up balls of clay, putting out galaxies and universes. No, God doesn't have fingers. God is not a human being. In fact, there's a brand new book by this brother right here. Very interesting brother, Stefan Alexander. He's a professor of physics at Brown University, the 2020 president of the National Society of Black Physicists. He's written a couple of books. Uh, he's got a book, I got it over here called The Jazz of Physics. This is his new book, Fear of a Black Universe, An Outsider's Guide to the Future of Physics. He's writing about physics as a redefinition of blackness. And, and the first thing I did when I got this book uh, uh, a couple of weeks ago, I'm like, let me go see if this man know anything about Africa. So I went to the, because uh, you can't write about this and not know about Africa. So, oh, page 206 and 207, African Philosophy. I go to page 206 and 207, and what is Dr. Alexander talking about? He says, he says, while there was an absence of African philosophy in my formal education, my musical colleague, my musical colleague, legendary bassist Melvin Gibbs, introduced me to a view of the creation of the universe presented by the Bantu Congo people of West Africa. This is on page 206 and 7. It took you this long. Anyway, man, because I got to read the rest of it. He says that predates our modern Big Bang theory. Predates our modern Big Bang theory. Little, now I won't quibble with his language. It's his book. But I would say it ain't your Big Bang theory. It's their Big Bang theory. And think about how much the idea that everything that exists came out of an explosion is consistent with a worldview that's about violence. But you don't find that in the African worldviews. Everything that emerged, emerged out of everything that always was, which means it was always there. And it didn't start with an explosion. Y'all always want to blow some shit up. What's wrong with y'all? Anyway, he says, but it has more, including an extra conceptual key to help us understand how to relate the quantum cosmos and consciousness with one another. This is a physicist, a black physicist who has been introduced to an Africana way of knowing by a musician who then finds resonant chords and how to think about the origins of the universe. He goes on and says in the Bantu cosmology, the universe started in a state of nothingness called Mbungi. Yeah, I don't know if that's necessarily true. I don't know that he actually has this book, but 
I have it, and I don't know if I can put my hands on it. But, oh, yeah, here we go. This is the book that he calls a quoting from, African Cosmology of the Bantu Congo by Kim Wandende Kia Bunsiki Fukia. Y'all heard me talk about Baba Fukia. He was very close with and an informant of helped uh, this guy understand a man who made transition last week, the great Robert Ferris Thompson, who we've talked about, Flash of the Spirit, white guy from West Texas, El Paso, Texas, who spent his whole life studying Africana, who made transition in his 90s. Uh, he was many years at Yale University on the faculty there. Uh, this is one of Robert Ferris Thompson's teachers, the great Baba Fukiao, and that's the guy that uh, Stefan Alexander is quoting for this whole notion of where blackness emerges. It's not a state of nothingness, but anyway, it goes on. He says, here nothingness includes the absence of space and time. Physical objects such as particles and fields usually exist in space-time. So Mbungi is the pre-physical state that is divided into what manifests as the physical spatio-temporal world and a universal consciousness. I'll stop there. Maybe we pick this up on Monday night because what he then walks through is how you can have a state of existence that precedes another state of existence, which is the state of existence we're aware of dealing in time and space. But the Africans already knew all that. The worldview, and this ain't just the Congo. If you look at the Yoruba, if you look at the ancient Egyptian, these these things are present. So in this article in the New York Times, when he's focused on John Coltrane's sound, how they gonna build this church because they were listeners, what he misses is Coltrane is emerging out of a genealogy that understands that the waves that sound travel on resonate with the waves of our existence in ways that free us of these narrow strictures of narrative that have tried to define who we are as human beings, particularly as African people, because that has been the way that we have made cultural meaning making. Now, the African Orthodox Church that he mentions, after they go from the Yardbird Church, and then they, you know, John Coltrane's uh, wife and then Allison, they're going to get in this lawsuit back and forth. And then they say, you know what, later for all these other formations, they approach the African Orthodox Church, they become aware of the African Orthodox Church, and the and, and the people in the African Orthodox Church say, well, y'all can become a church in us. You can't make uh, uh, Coltrane God, though. Well, we ain't interested in God. Why? Because we know God is not human. God comes out of the darkness. God comes out of the blackness. Now, the closest thing we can recognize in time and space as a conduit of those deeper universal principles, not universality in terms of Macron trying to make Josephine Baker somebody. You know what Josephine Baker was? She was black and she was black before she was French. And guess what? This is really going to rock your world, Macron. So were you. But you don't remember that. And that's your problem. You've tried to restrict humanity into this racial definition of whiteness and blackness when in fact our definitions of blackness have nothing to do with race go read a physicist or better yet go read fukia or better yet go put on some john coltrane or better yet go listen to them friend, them africans who came over there and played in france like sydney bechet yeah why don't you do that but you're not gonna do that coming back to the point so you can't make him god when well, we ain't trying to make him god you can make him a saint no problem and therein you see the african way of knowing See, in the Western tradition, they don't even understand the Catholics. This is the origin of European Christianity, which is an African export, as John Clark always reminded us. Not with the male chauvinist murder cult pieces, which John, uh, John uh, Henry Clark always reminded us. But saints are just human expressions of this divine iteration. So when the Catholics have saints, they're following, knowingly or unknowingly, and I won't even get into that, in the footsteps of the Africans. Osar and Oset, Isis and Osiris, Nebet and Setek, Set and Nept. All these, 
these are not gods. They're Neturu. They are they are manifestations of this broader, larger universal concept. The saints are not gods. They are manifestations of this broader concept of the divine. Except in your case, you think you can paint God and make him a white man touching people's fingertips on the, on the 16th chapel. We're looking at you like, you know, lost your damn mind. You know, just leaving people alone. So when you enslaved us and brought all these different African cultures together on an island like Haiti, they say, you know what, just whatever. Y'all call it St. Mary, no problem. You call it St. Patrick, no problem. You call it St. Christopher, no problem. But who is that really? That's Odumare, Ray, yo. Come on now. <laughs> that's Papa Legba, the guardian of the girl. Yes, yeah, whatever. Yeah, whatever you say. They just took their Orisha, remixed them, hid them up under the Catholic saints, called them Loas, which is why the joke in Haiti is Haitians are 99% Catholic and 100% Vodun. We just hid it up under. John Coltrane don't even go through naming any of that stuff. He just puts that horn in his mouth and opens you up to the cosmic and it moves you so much that these black people say we're going to name this church the saint of john coltrane but in order to do it finally they had to have in the governance structure a formation that can do it and what this writer either didn't know or didn't include is that the african orthodox church was founded by a dude named george alexander mcguire george alexander mcguire was out of antigua born in the 1860s he was trained in the uh, traditions of uh, is it Presbers. Um, hmm, now they have a diocese tradition. Maybe they're Moravians. He he was at he was in Philadelphia. In fact, he was director at uh my man uh my man like I knew him this ancestor, this ancestor uh Absalom Jones. Y'all yeah, know. Absalom Jones and Richard and Sarah Allen them started the African Methodist Episcopal Church, and then Absalom Jones leaves his church. Of course, Mother Bethel is still there in Philly, as is Absalom Jones's church, which is Methodist. That's right. George McGuire was Methodist. Eventually, this is not in the article now. All they naming is the African Orthodox Church and saying that you got a church of St. John Coltrane that comes up under that. So if you're reading this and don't know the genealogy, you think, oh, this is, this is weird. This is bizarre. This is interesting. Pause. The African Orthodox Church was created exactly to promulgate these African ways of knowing, because at some point, George McGuire, after having been in Philly, after going to Arkansas, after spending some time in Ohio, he leaves that formation and he becomes the bishop. The bishop of what? The African Orthodox Church? No, I'm sorry. Bishop comes later. He becomes the chaplain, the chaplain general. What? Uh, 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 he's left? No. But the other church? No. He's the chaplain general. Professor Hunter of the Universal Negro Improvement Association and African Communities League of the World. That's right, Oz. This was Marcus Garvey's preacher. I don't see the name Garvey nowhere in that article. Do you understand that before there was the African Orthodox Church, there was the Universal Ethiopian Church and the general chaplain of the UNIA was Bishop, uh, become soon to be Bishop, George McGuire, who said in 1921 that God, if you want to have an image of God as human, he must be black. If there must be a, a savior, he must be black. If you must have a Madonna, it must be black. So if you don't understand that, you might think that these they just made up some African Orthodox Church. Then they made John Coltrane a saint. No, this is very African. This is very, so I'm going to pause with that. Maybe we pick it up in office hours. But you, you don't get none of that from the article because the man don't know. And that's why we got to have these spaces. You don't even know who we are, bro. And it's good. Nice try. But you don't even know who we are. So I'm going to stop with that. Oh, you, you muted. You muted, bro. 
And some of us don't know who we are, which is why we're here too. Which is to why remember, to remember, to remember. remember. And I want to thank you. The last, you know, where we went was amazing. But that <laughs> last piece, <laughs> I, I just got to sit with this. I got to go back and re-listen, re-watch, and just sit with it for a minute. Because you done cracked open something in me today that... Um, what me with John Coltrane. All right. I'm, I'm going to have to put on some Coltrane and get busy. Yes. Yes. Hey y'all, I know look, I've been missing the chat. It's yeah. we up over 700. They not uh, playing. It had past 770. I think we broke the thing and then folk had to leave and come back. It's all right. We got a meeting on Monday about the bandwidth issues cuz they you know, you don't expect uh folk to come in in these great numbers to to chat on a 8:30 in the morning Saturday to yeah. have, you know. You don't hey y'all y'all be, be careful on YouTube cuz y'all know we moving into the thing, right? Liberated space is liberated space. And in the chat, while y'all in here now, put please, y'all put y'all favorite John Cole, because I'm going to do the same thing you want to do, Prof. My, my favorite, I have different favorites, but in a Love Supreme, that, that movement resolution, That's right. I, I mean, mm -mm -mm. Yeah. Hoka dropping it already. They ain't, they ain't even instruction. Yeah, Love Supreme just made it, made his way into the chat. Yes. Yeah, yeah, this, this, is, this is special. Yeah. Uh, I love you so much. Thank I love you. I love you too. You. And look, we we went a lot of places today. That that terminating pregnancy thing is difficult. So I know it is. And listen, we are we are in it now. Look, there is no sheltered rear. You got to pick a side. These people are not playing. And I'm not talking about all white people or all black people. What is at stake is literally our lives. Because if they get to keep getting away with this, they shooting people in the streets, y'all. White people shooting white people in the street. We can we can we can stop where we began, Professor Hunter. On, you started us with John Brown, and John Brown said on the gallows. John Brown said, "If I was doing this in a way that you all respect, I would be a hero. I would be a hero." He's got a street name for him in Haiti. Black women made sure his wife and the rest of their children were taken care of, and he was considered a terrorist in this country. Meanwhile, Kyle Rittenhouse walks the streets free. Flew down to Florida and took a picture. And if you don't think that you ain't going to see him again, you're not paying attention. So we got a choice to make in this country. There is no, it's either you for humanity or you're against humanity. So I'm going to pause it. I won't get to We get tomorrow. Well, and, I see what's Monday night we're going to get into. And tomorrow, uh, Maroon's Medicine Chest, exclusively in Nubia. I'm going to ask the great Senyata, amen. How did women uh, terminate pregnancies? Ooh! Yeah, I'm going to ask her about You know that. what? Let me just say, if y'all are watching on YouTube and y'all are not members of Narrative, y'all are not in Nubia, Maroon's Medicine Chest is pure, life-saving, clean water. And the, if you, that tomorrow, that's appointment viewing. Because that ain't got nothing to do with the Supreme Court. Now we're talking about, and also ask, ask Dr. Ahmed, ask our, our, our sister and colleague too, because I took that Moderna booster shot and I'm kind of woozy. So if you if you think about it, ask about what we should be doing around this booster business too. Okay. <laughs> I, I haven't boosted yet, so you. Yeah, I'm, I'm watching. I'm, <laughs> <laughs> I'll be watching y'all tomorrow. Cause I, <laughs> I love you. I love you too. See y'all. See y'all in the Nubian streets. Yes. Yeah, see y'all.